Today's episode, if you are missing out, is sponsored by Fiverr. You may know Fiverr as the preferred source for freelance services, but did you know that they also provide online courses as well? Learn from Fiverr is an online, on-demand video classes platform specially tailored for freelancers and professionals. All classes are taught by top experts who are distinguished in their fields. These courses contain practical and comprehensive knowledge. By taking the course, you'll level up your skills and grow professionally. And by successfully passing the course's final quiz, you'll showcase your new capabilities. And the best part? Pay only for courses you want to take with no monthly fees. Visit our show notes for more information to see if there's a Learn From Fiverr course for you. Every course you enroll in using our link goes directly to making this show better. Thank you for your support. And now, on with the show. Gentlemen, lots of movies turn people into legends. What's your favorite movie that deconstructs a legend and makes them human again? Uh, there's a lot of options for this one. So I went, I went to recent history, and not within a movie released recently. Uh, I'm talking about within recent history of this show. Uh, my pick is Tombstone, because as we got into in that episode, there's a lot. There's a lot of movies and TV shows and books and blah 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 about the great old legend of Wyatt Earp and the gunfight at the OK Corral and all of that stuff. And they all paint Wyatt as this good guy who's doing things for the right reasons and all of this shit. And I just love that it's it's subtle. It doesn't it's not didactic. It doesn't hold your hand telling you all of this stuff. But Tombstone is so great at just showing you that Wyatt is selfish, greedy, and has no real interest in being a good guy. That the only reason he gets involved in the gunfight and the wiping out of the cowboys in the in the end is personal revenge there's no honor in what he does nothing he does is for the betterment of anyone other than himself he is a eh, kind of a piece of shit and i think that's pretty refreshing for uh especially a movie that in in the western sphere like the western genre is almost a bit like scarface where a lot of people kind of just miss the point of Tombstone and they think, yeah, Wyatt Earp's a great guy. Yeah, Wyatt. Bleh. Tombstone's a little more honest about that. It's a little more honest about Doc being a, a, a real scumbum, but in a way having more honor than Wyatt. I think Tombstone is a great example of that. Uh, interesting, Tom. You, uh, you know, in the pantheon of cinema and so many films in so many different genres in so many different time periods that seek to deconstruct uh, a legendary figure. Uh, you chose a, a movie about a, a famous cowboy who was mythologized. I'm going in a different direction. I'm choosing a movie about a famous cowboy who was mythologized. De- a couple decades before Tombstone, uh, though, the Bicentennial was coming up in America. So a lot of mythologizing about America, the American West, and all of that. Uh, Robert Altman decided he wanted something to say. Uh, he had something to say about that. And so he creates one of my favorite Altman films. It's, it's um, not brought up as much as some of the more established classics like Nashville and MASH, but I really recommend people check it out. Uh, Buffalo Bill and the Indians is the title. Uh, it stars Paul Newman. He's ostensibly playing Buffalo Bill, even though nobody is actually credited by a name. They're just called the star, the director, what have you. And it's all about the Buffalo Bill Wild West shows that created the myth of the West, um, because that's why all of our Westerns, all of our stories come from these Buffalo Bill shows where Buffalo Bill would kind of show up and go, let me tell you how we fought the engines. 
um, and the show. It it ultimately is a film depicting how sad and pathetic Buffalo Bill was, and this whole enterprise that it depicts Sitting Bull and these these Native Americans as the actual valiant warriors, while these men just want to play pretend in a circus tent to entertain Grover Cleveland. Um, this extraordinary film, the ending shot. Uh, is is just one of my favorites, so I highly recommend folks check it out. Uh, Buffalo Bill and the Indians is my my answer there. Every year since 1989, the Library of Congress has selected 25 films to add to the National Film Registry. The criteria: the films must be culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Each week on You're Missing Out, we take a look at one of these films to try and get to the heart of why they were selected and why they still matter. This week, we're hitching a camel through the Arabian Desert with an old friend. Returning guest Vice Victus is back for the 1962 epic, Lawrence of Arabia. Our guest today only wrote uh, in the little blurb for me to read, Vice is good, but if... Which is true. It's, It's true. He is good. If he's not going to plug his podcast, I, I will. He is one of the hosts of Action for Everyone, uh, which is my, uh, my, my partner and I's cat's favorite podcast. This is a fact. We'll get into it. Uh, Vice Victus joins us today to discuss Lawrence of Arabia. Vice, thank you so much for joining us uh, once again on the show. Honestly, it's great to be back again. Um, good to see you guys again. Um, it's been a long time. Uh, Way too long. Yeah, yeah, seriously. And, uh, no, yeah, it's, it's um, it's it's funny. I tell the story. I, I just like quickly. Yeah, I forgot. I forgot what we do this today, so I had to see the movie <laughs> like quickly. But you can't see a four hour movie quickly at all. So There's a very strange paradox going on right there. <laughs> but, but that's how we roll. That's how I do stuff nowadays. It's kind of off the cuff. Do you remember? Do you remember the last time I saw you, Vice? The last time we saw each other in person? Oh crap! I, where was it? I forgot. Because it was the craziest thing. As me, James, and Anthony were walking out of the AMC in the city, see, yeah. having seen Top Gun Maverick. Yeah, 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 yeah. You and who? Who else? Who are you with? You walk. We just see. We just see you walking down the street, and we just go. That can't be him. Out of all the <laughs> fucking movies, and you just walk. It's like there he is, <laughs> and just like oh, if I wish I could have seen Top Gun Maverick with Vice. Uh, there he is, walking into the next screening. Perfect. Weirdly, weirdly, Tom, if I remember you telling me, the only way you knew it was him was uh, you saw a hand reach down and pull a cheeseburger out of his pocket. <laughs> that's, that's, you were like, that well, he can't wasn't, be him. And he wasn't, the he wasn't in the theater yet. Well, I know. Well, he wasn't in the theater yet. So the cheeseburger was firmly in the pocket. Once he gets in his seat, then the cheeseburger is unleashed. <laughs> Upon the world. If you're if you're only a listener of our show, I'm a pocket makes, burrito guy. Like, by the way, if you're only a listener of nice. our show, that means that probably means nothing. But if you are an action for everyone listener, that's like you know that we we just threw in one of the recurring segments, right? We just did a little, you know, little, not even a segment. It's the truth. Yeah, like, it's a <laughs> pocket food makes movies better. You like you can't spend eight dollars for a pizza that that sucks shit. You gotta like get an actual good. Go to make the bow burger in the air fryer. Put together eight dollars. Excuse me, eight dollars for a pizza at a movie theater? That's like now? seventeen dollars. Oh Christ, Jesus. exactly. Eight dollars exactly. for popcorn. Come on now. <laughs> Come on now. We're not no, made, we're not made we're not made out of doubloons here. Let's go. Come on. 
Before we get into Lawrence, because I do want to acknowledge this, because we haven't had a chance to talk about this directly. Uh, it is true. Uh, I have a podcast. Uh, our cat does not care about my podcast, but our uh, our cat, who is affectionately referred to as Action Cat by you guys, uh, actually enjoys listening to your show. Uh, I have shown you video of this because yes. uh, the cat... We call her Action Cat because the cat enjoys watching action movies. We think it's because she likes watching arms flail around or whatever. Um, one time, um, my partner was watching Blade on her laptop, and the cat walked over and just plopped her ass down and stared at the screen and was just <laughs> transfixed by it. Didn't leave for the full runtime, uh, which I, I sent you a picture of. Yeah. Um, and then we thought, oh, you know what would be cute? You guys at Action for Everyone put out a video episode of your podcast talking about Blade, wherein you also uh, pull out a real sword. Uh, (laughs) And we thought, well, this will be cute. Let's take a picture of the cat in front of the laptop while the podcast is on. She'll probably walk away in a couple minutes, but this will be cute. And then what happened was the cat not only stayed and watched, but started purring. (laughs) <laughs> we i sent you and and mike the video like the cat listening to you guys and watching the show just started purring um which is a very weird experience that this cat looks so tranquil and content while you yell the words where is your sword where is your dick man <laughs> if you have that on mute you're like this is a really sweet image this could be a hallmark card and then you hear what you're actually saying that the cat's responding to well it's pretty fitting that uh of the two shows the one that neither of us are on is the one that knows how to make a pussy purr (laughs) (laughs) take it to the bank you're here first ladies (laughs) love your wife See, I would love if on the video we just saw the door slowly creak open. (laughs) No, we don't even see the door slowly creak open. We just see smoke starting to rise from (laughs) under the door. Um, Yeah, so I just just wanted to address that. Uh, Obviously, you know, this is also the one room of the apartment the cat is not allowed in, so she won't be joining us. I'm sorry, but, uh, you know. Mike has told me that there's a standing offer that she can be a guest on an episode of your show sometime. You know, if we could ever figure out... It, he he said, you know, if we could ever figure out how to rig the mic, you know, might be tricky. Take over my spot. I'm gonna take a day off. Sure. <laughs> shit, shit. The cats gonna get invited on before me. Goddamn. Has <laughs> <laughs> better than me anyway, probably. Yeah, I suck at this. <laughs> I just, I would, I would genuinely love to watch that episode where the cats filling in for you, but they never address it. <laughs> your list, your listeners are just like, I don't know what happened. Vice had nothing to say about the new common writer, and at some points it sounded like he dozed off and started making little pig noises with his nose. It was very weird. Occasionally, it like he tried to do a half meow, but it just sounds like he's going. I guess he ate some oxtail before recording this episode. <laughs> um, he's feeling very so, relaxed. So all that, all that to you know to say, we're so glad you joined us because you are uh, in a sense kind of our uh our unofficial war correspondent here on on you're missing out you know we have always had you on to cover a war film because that is one of the things that you uh focus on in your work as a as a film 
how would you want to call it? Film critic, essayist, academic, whatever. What category do you want at this point? Because like asshole underwear at this point. <laughs> Like, no, I, I mean, I don't know. It's hard to say because, uh, well, yeah, I guess my main gig is the podcast, but I don't, I'm not even sure anymore. Like, uh, just maybe, maybe film correspondent is the best thing. Okay. Like, when I say I'm out here on the streets, I mean it. I'm trying to go to festivals and stuff. Like, as we heard earlier, I'm like, look at, look at, see, look, you see me out of Top Gun, you know? But, um, and then the other part is like, as we're, to- as we're talking now, what, what movie we're getting to, like, uh, the other part is that, it's been what fucking 2016, seven, eight, yeah. Well, how many years since I got out of the army? So, like, some of the stuff is fading, but some of it is as fresh as yesterday. And so, so I don't know. It's a, it, on one hand, it's weird to like, uh, I can only leverage my experience for so long. And yet, as we'll get into today, some of this shit is timeless. Like, the shit that, he, that, the stuff that T. Lawrence will experience and uh, some of those same themes and, and uh, elements that's stuff as fresh as ever even today even now even you know here in the civilian world we're in the, in the back in the world yeah. so yeah it's a very strange yeah maybe uh dumbass movie correspondent is my current title because it seems to be fitting in season one you joined us to talk about the best years of our lives uh the pivotal world war ii film in season two you came on uh we took a trip to germany in world war one for all quiet on the western front Little did any of us know that a remake was going to come out and win a bunch of Oscars. Some might say too many. That's up for debate. Uh, but in any event, um, you were on for that. And now uh, this season, you know, we, we had to have you on for, for Lawrence of Arabia, which is uh, one of the definitive. I mean, pe- weirdly, I don't think when people bring up war movies. I don't think Lawrence of Arabia is brought up as often as you might think, because so often when people think about war, they're often focused on like soldiers in fatigues and all of that. And this gets classified much more as yeah, they don't war. They don't, I don't think it's really talked about as a war movie at all. And to the point where it, it even surprised me a little bit, not like once I thought about it, but like, Oh, we're bringing vice on for Lawrence. And I, Oh yeah, it is a war movie. Like you, you, cause it's, it is such a long movie. And in the first, like the pre, in the fir- before the intermission, there's the one battle scene on Aqaba, and the rest of it's slow trudging through the desert, like showing how harsh this environment is. All of that, it's not even getting into the pol- like kind of the politics, but more of the politics of all of the tribes in the desert. Mm-hmm. And then in the second half, you get more kind of clearly defined war stuff him blowing up the trains and raiding everything and all of that stuff then you get the politics of what's going on behind the scenes with europe and all of this shit so i mean because when if you want to think about it and like mathematically a small percentage of this movie is actually about like quote-unquote war there's not much battle in this movie but politically and in terms of like like Vice was saying, like the things that are timeless about war and the experiences of war and being in a strange land and all of this stuff, it's, you know, it's timeless. It's stuff that does make it very firmly in the war uh, subgenre. And I would say it kind of ties into the first one that we did with Vice, Best Years of Our Lives, Yeah, because obviously there's no combat in Best Years of Our Lives either. It's all about these men who experienced war and were scarred from war coming home and what 
Lawrence is ultimately about is, okay, w- you know, we're going to do a movie about a guy who uh, will never be able to come home from the war because he doesn't have a home. Like, he just has no, he doesn't fit in anywhere. It's part of what it's kind of, it's kind of the perfect middle of the two movies Vice has covered beforehand because there is, it is very much not being out of the war, like Best Years of Our Lives, where they're home, quote unquote, and they're out of the battle. And All Quiet on Western Front is all just the horrors of the battle, where this is a good middle ground of, it's not always at this tense, like, oh, something's going to happen and we got to worry about what's going on, but it's got some of that stuff. So it's this interesting middle ground between the two, I think. So there's, I, um, yeah, there's a, it's one of the things I noticed about it is that, um, well, for one, like for a current time frame, I'm surprised that, yeah, I guess it's, I guess it's thought of more in the, um, as a anti-imperialism or imperial, imperial criticism text. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think that, and maybe not, and honestly, I guess more brought up nowadays as like a, as a punchline or, or a um, a, a a bullet point in arguments. Like people will say, "Oh, I don't want to watch Avatar. Is, is this Lawrence Arabia in space or whatever?" Or like yeah. scribbling off this like white savior stuff. So they'll say that, but then like that also implies that well, one, they're not paying attention to Avatar as 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 dumb as it might seem, as sexy yeah. some shit. But two, it also like. They didn't pay attention. They didn't pay attention to the attention to the original movie. Like, yeah. that's not what the Lawrence Arabia is about. It is, like, fact, I mean, it is in fact wildly, I would say, not ahead of its time in terms of like it. Obviously, we know this, but like for a major motion picture, right? Yeah. To to not only not be a white saver movie, to, but to explicitly deconstruct that concept. I mean, there is. Well, I guess. Like, yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's difficult. I, maybe it's not to say that it's not. It's like. I mean, because it is it is about that, like, yeah. like it's like, yeah, it's like exploring the whole concept itself. So, like, uh, it's not whether it is or isn't, but like, uh, what is it? What is a white savior? And is is like one of the you know, yeah, prime examples of history. So it's like it's exploring that without, I guess, yeah, it's, it's so strange. Like, I guess we always hear the uh, uh, someone showing something is not uh, condoning it. Yeah, depiction it's, is not endorsement. Exactly, exactly. So that is that thing. It's like it's, you got to show it. To like, see, you know, it's about you got to show the story. But that's just not, that's not what it's like meant for. It's like exploring this whole well, thing in depth. It, it's, it's almost like what Scorsese does with his movies uh, in, in that certain vein, like Goodfellas, Casino, Wolf of Wall Street, where it's got to get you into the world and kind of get you into understanding why everybody in each of those tribes kind of fell under Lawrence's spell before pulling the rug out from under you and being like, no, this guy's kind of a weird piece of shit who knows he's a piece of shit and multiple times throughout the second half of this movie he's like take me out of the desert i like this shit too much i'm going to become a fucking maniac please god help me and the and they're just like no that actually sounds good for us what we want well so keep being a gigantic freak and um when when you say major motion picture um i did this math with when because i rewatched it with Kyle because I insisted he watched it at my house because I have the 4K this big ass TV and the surround sound. Uh looking up and then doing the inflation. This movie cost 15 million in 1962 money, which uh, inflated today is uh, a little over 150 million dollars. Mm. Um it made 70 million in 1962. 
which is over $700 million in today's money. So uh, it cost, I mean, that is, uh, they did not spend that kind of money back then. That is an insane amount of money. And uh, it's still crazy to think that uh, inflated, it costs less than half of Indiana Jones 5. <laughs> and it doesn't look like shit. <laughs> Now I will I to But that's a ma- that, that is a major yeah, motion no. picture. Like that is well, maybe the biggest event or like whatever since Gone with the Wind. Like uh, they didn't spend money like into. that back then. Um but before so uh, we're going to do our usual uh thing. Uh and by that I mean I got to read the registry statement, but before I do, I want to just cover this ground. Tom, you're talking about major po- uh, major motion picture. I think it is this thing and I'll just speak for me a little bit and I'll ask you guys but like it is one of those movies like Gone with the Wind, I think, where like once you start liking movies or deciding like I care about this medium, it's one of the ones you I would say hear about even long before you ever see it. Like the name carries weight. So with that oh, in yeah. mind, I, I wanna start um advice starting with you and then and Tom to you, but before I even ask, like, what, when was the first time you saw this movie? Uh, in addition to that, I just want to know what what was your familiarity with this movie in terms of what it, the mystique around it, the reputation it has, just like your awareness of Lawrence of Arabia even before you ever saw it, and then obviously when you finally saw it. Uh, the first part, cinematically wise, or like a culturally, like a this the um, it's as a spectacle, the the match cut, I guess, was called that because of this yeah. movie, I think, uh, like like. Like there's techniques about it and um its, it's scope and scale of it. I just I knew about it and it's and it just um you can see other like uh homages and references in other movies. One of those things, even as a key, you may not have seen it when you're younger, but like you know you you can see people are looking at it. But the other part of it, is, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um the other part of it is just um in the army like um we that whole um going native or going rogue or that whole that it's just, the, the actual military history of it. Does become part of our that's kind of part of our to some degree based on where you go part of the actual academic um, portion as well. Um, like I, I didn't do I didn't do any specific reading or there was no specific assigned reading about T. E. Lawrence in, in the classes I went to, but it is like it is part of the long chain of military history that we reference in actual in actual operations. So just yeah, so just having that that those two uh, prisms of seeing it has carried this much weight. So that now that I finally. Now, just now this year, today, <laughs> finally seeing it. Um, and it, well, actually, it's actually funny. I get I bought the Blu-ray years, years ago, like when the first um, remaster, or whatever came out. So, I, and I was saving something special. So, of course, I had to save for this. Um, but yeah, but I, but also just like a, I did, I did, I did think I wanted to. Um, I did want to give it myself some time, which sounds dumb because it's from like 1963, or whatever. Like, well, I, 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 I guess I needed. I was mentioning earlier, I needed the, the years. Away, I guess, kind of get ready for it, you know. I I, I wasn't sure what to expect. It turned out, and I, I, I'm, glad, I'm glad I did actually, uh, honestly, because it was uh, not that stuff was coming back per se, but just um, having some distance of it actually gave me a little more clarity uh, of some of the um, what's meat of it against too. So, yeah, yeah, just uh, that both the cover, the cultural part and the actual historical part has been part of me with me for a while. Tom, when was what? When was your first time seeing it, if you recall, and, and what was your kind of awareness of it prior to that? Well, I mean, my awareness of it was just one of those things that it was just always one of those movies talked about. 
um you know whenever you'd watch one of those like top 100 movie things on a on a and e or whatever or you see like the empire list or the afi list you know you know as the older we got and the more tech technology started picking up and we'd had access to the internet and message boards and film twitter became a thing and podcasts and you get more more and more you just keep hearing about lawrence of arabia it's one of those things blah 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 and at a certain point you know i i'm a big collector of these of blu-rays and now 4k discs and everything so it was one of those cases of well i'm gonna wait until the blu-ray comes out because uh i didn't really know much about rep screenings or whatever and i really didn't care enough to like oh i'm gonna wait to see it on 70 or whatever like i'll i got a big tv i'll wait till the blu-ray and the blu-ray came out and everyone the reviews were great everyone's like oh my god it looks like pristine like you have your own printed movie blah blah, blah. and i watched it blown away unbelievable movie um and then we were talking off mic we me and you saw it uh 70 millimeter mm -hmm. yeah. at the uh the museum of the moving image in queens uh and it was great you know it was awesome and it just solidified how much i think this movie is just one of like the like the movies of all time um and then you get this then they put out a 4k disc about a year or two ago which is even just better i watched like i said i watched it with kyle he could he could tell you it looks unbelievable it sounds amazing and one of the things that was nice about watching it with Kyle, and he's a, he's you know he's a self admitted not as much of a cinephile as us, where he's he wants to learn more, but he's not you know weird like we are. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but just watching it with hit with someone with such fresh eyes, and the entire mo time he was just naming movies that he clearly like this inspired. Like mm -hmm. a, a scene would happen and he'd be like, oh, this was in this or the, or like a music cue. Oh, this is from this. This. Oh, this is a, uh, you know, I don't have a list in front of me, but I would be hard pressed for any movie of the at least a American movie of the 60s, maybe like Bonnie and Clyde or The Graduate or something. But even so, like, I don't know if any movies had as like greater a reach in terms of just influencing filmmakers and cinematographers and compose like just like from top to bottom acting how many people talk about peter o'toole's performance in this movie is like oh my god it's one of the great it's got me into acting david lean's work and you know we're in we're in an era where people do these tiny little shit ass independent movies for twenty thousand dollars this is a guy who was making no coward plays into movies and charles dickens books into he was making tiny little black and white fucking things and then he gets the equivalent of a marvel movie budget <laughs> to make a movie about the guy who ruined the world you know <laughs> but and but we'll, like he yeah, acquits we'll himself why he gets that but like and he acquits himself so well to it so it's just it's it, this is one of those movies we get to every now and then on the show where you just like why is it in the registry and you just go why the fuck wouldn't it be like, yeah. like, come on. Uh, my, my relationship with this film, I'll have to get into a little bit of an anecdote with that. But, um, so I, when I was a little kid, uh, my favorite movie, like as a little boy was, was Aladdin. I, I loved Aladdin. It's, it's, I, I think that that movie, uh, wormed its way into my brain very quickly because I, I just had this from a very young age, this, I was drawn to this idea of the romantic desert, right. And all of that. And these stories, um, 
I became aware of Lawrence of Arabia through, as Tom was suggesting, like the AFI list, the A&E things. But I didn't actually watch it for a little while because uh, my parents told me it was boring. <laughs> and I, I just, in my mind, in my mind, I was just like, oh, this is one of those kind of like, because I was, you know, 10 years old, whatever. I was like, oh, this is one of those homework movies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I had seen maybe an image here or there. And the reason I bring up Aladdin is like, you know, again, that was, uh, I thought like as a kid, that was like, oh, this is the best this is ever going to feel. Um, and then years, like, I, and little did I know that was the, uh, simply the methadone to the heroine that was Lawrence of Arabia to come. The reason I ended up finally watching it the first time, uh, I'm not going to name the teacher because they might get scolded. Well, they're probably retired by now. So I was in high school, uh, freshman year of high school when I first, uh, read the Quran because I got very interested in the culture of the Middle East and kind of that entire era of history. Again, that, 1992 romance of the desert embedded itself very much in my brain now important reminder for everybody um not uh 2004 2005 not a great time to be carrying around a copy of the quran in deeply conservative long island high school why what happened didn't yeah didn't it it got (laughs) some bad reception but there was one teacher in the school who saw me and you know for folks who who don't know what i look like um pale blonde hair blue eyes and i was very scrawny back then and just called me lawrence of arabia like as a as but said it in like a to be a dick right to be like a dismissive dick and then i was like uh, okay, if he's saying that, I might as well check this thing out. So I went down to Blockbuster, rented the DVD, which now feels like heresy to think about watching it on DVD, but I did. <laughs> One of those where you had to like switch the disc halfway through. And it was, as I, you know, as I joked earlier, like for the kid that loved Aladdin growing up, this thing was just like right back into my veins, so much so that it was one of the only times that, despite being a four-hour film, one of the only times that I rented a movie watched it and then watched it again before i returned it um so i i had been aware of once but I, yeah i watched it for the first time when i was about you know, 14 15 and suddenly like all of the times that i had heard people i had seen spielberg and documentaries talk about it or like tom saying seeing those movies that had been influenced by it like suddenly it was just all the pieces came together and like very quickly i kind of just uh Around that same time, I kind of just went like, all right, The Graduate, Lawrence of Arabia, these two movies are just kind of going to inform my taste in cinema for the next 20 years. Uh, and it hasn't really uh, been shaken yet. But yeah, as, as Tom indicated, too, I'm also of the opinion this is one of the, not just one of the great movies, it's one of the movies. It's, it's certainly one that, that we both talk about a lot and contains my favorite scene in any film ever made, if that's a good uh, idea, al- you know. Yeah. Also got to say, you know, you were worried about telling that story. Oh, maybe the teacher gets scolded. Not the worst story that starts with, and so the teacher saw me in the hallway. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, teacher, the teacher saw me in the hallway, coughed into their rag a bunch Especially of times. Especially on Long Island. Not really clear. That's, on oh, I'm just, yeah. that's what I was just thinking. Uh, anyway. Anyway. So before we say any more about what we think of Lawrence of Arabia, let's talk about what the Library of Congress had to say. Here's what the National Film Registry says about Lawrence of Arabia. Based on the exploits of T.E. Lawrence during World War I, this renowned classic may play fast and loose with history and psychology, but its remarkable beauty is breathtaking. 
David Lean crafts this film, one of his many epics, with sweeping wide shots that capture the desolation of the desert. Peter O'Toole, who was nominated for an Oscar but lost to Gregory Peck for To Kill a Mockingbird, plays Lawrence larger than life, albeit with marginal historical accuracy. Also starring Omar Sharif, Anthony Quinn, and Alec Guinness, the film took home a total of seven Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Director, Best Cinematography, Freddie Young, and one for Maurice Jarre's memorably rousing score. That's what the National Film Registry had to say. Also, at the end of every episode, uh, I asked Tom how he thinks the movie did at the Oscars, so now we get to play a fun game. Will Tom remember what I just read in roughly an hour? No. I was going to say, considering this was prefaced by me saying, by you saying, I don't listen when you talk, safe to bet. It's just, you know, nice around. But that's what the Library of Congress had to say. Now, they, they really... They really lean heavy on. Uh, they really lean heavy on the idea of this movie isn't historically accurate, which is both true and also kind of tough to pin down because who's telling the history with this time period is very tricky. Um, for example, something like the Siege of Aqaba. Um, Lawrence will tell you, like in Seven Pillars of Wisdom, uh, his his book that is, you know, ostensibly what this is kind of based on, he'll tell you he was involved in, you know, pushing for the Siege of Aqaba. Prince Faisal maintained Lawrence had nothing to do with the plan. It wasn't Lawrence's idea at all. Um, then there's also stuff that we didn't find out until much later. Uh, for example, it's distinctly possible that the British government was like, trying to prep T.E. Lawrence to be a spy well before he knew what was going on. There's, there's a fact that when T.E. Lawrence was a young man, he was a student uh, studying like the Crusades and medieval architecture, and this guy named Hogarth came along to him and was like, hey, young academic, uh, what if we paid for you to go do a walking tour of the Middle East and what would be like modern-day Iran and stuff? And he was like, thanks, Mr. Hogarth, that's really swell. That's going to help my studies. And they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't, don't ask about where the money's coming from. And it turns out Hogarth was in what must have been like an earlier version of MI6. And then years later, this same Hogarth guy is running the Arab Bureau during the war. Hmm. And he's the one that's like, get that, get that boy out of the map room. I got a feeling about him. Hey, it's Claude Rains. Yeah, you know, kind <laughs> of, kind of, yeah. So no, that's just that's just just straight up a John Le Carre novel. Yeah, that's that stuff we find out. That's the little drummer later. girl. <laughs> that's um, that's but, what happens yeah. in the little drummer girl. But it's uh yeah, yeah. but it's it's it is so I, I say that as in like they are emphasizing it's not historically accurate, and I think it's certainly not. I mean, one point people bring up Lawrence was actually very short. Peter O'Toole quite tall. Uh, little things like that. Um, the Omar Sharif character is not a person who existed historically. Anthony Quinn is. Anthony Quinn playing, um, oh, I want to make sure I get his name right, and I'm going to mispronounce it anyway, because I'm terrible. But um, Anthony, Quinn's ca- yeah, yeah. Anthony Quinn uh, was, is playing a real person. Auda Abu Tai. Yes, Auda Abu Tai. Uh, Lawrence writes about him in the book. Um, obviously, Alec Guinness is playing a real guy, Prince Faisal. Um, Best Middle Eastern actor to ever live. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's one of those funny anecdotes, though, because, like, obviously it's Alec Innocent Brownface, a thing we would not do today, one would hope, anyway. But the fascinating thing is, you know, the, the one story you hear a lot is when Alec Innocent came out from makeup and was on the set, 
people from the Arab region who knew the real Prince Faisal and like knew him from pictures or had maybe seen him once kept going like it it's like he's here mm. like his movements his look so it was one of those strange things where like at the time and there's I mean even Anthony Quinn there's the anecdote that um they had cast Anthony Quinn because they needed a star, right? The studio insisted, like, you need a star because nobody else was that big a star, you know? Yeah. Peter O'Toole, the studio didn't want him because he wasn't a name. They wanted, like, Marlon Brando. Yeah. Would have been a terrible yeah. movie. Um, Nightmare. Yeah. But Anthony <laughs> Quinn, they cast Anthony Quinn. Um, Anthony Quinn gets put into makeup to, you know, with, the, with the prosthetics and everything to look like out. Um, and when he came on to set, Reportedly, David Lean saw a guy he didn't recognize, went, well, that looks like the bloody guy. Can we get rid of Quinn? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I just want to talk about the history because I did, you know, I, I've been at Lawrence. Um, I've been intrigued by Lawrence for a long time. So I did do a lot of like research into the history. I did read this large tome that is his Seven Pillars of Wisdom. I'm, in fact, such a fan. I, I showed this to Kyle before we started. You might find this interesting. You might not. But a friend of mine was actually in Jordan and t- walked or not took a tour of the path that Lawrence traveled and was kind enough to bring me back. I actually do own sand from the desert wherein uh, Lawrence did his famous journey. And it is fascinating to look at because when you read Lawrence's book and they even acknowledge it in the film, like the idea of like, oh, the you know, the blood in the sand. You do look at this. This is a very dark red mm. scent. You can kind of see how even in Lawrence's telling of these bloody battles, it does become easy for him to romanticize as a writer. And so I think that that romance makes it very hard to determine what is actual historical fact amidst all of it. I think I have some sand from Iraq, so my in the basement downstairs in a bag somewhere to, uh, to hide, <laughs> to hide my shame. <laughs> you don't right, i got a i got a cardboard box of uh stuff in my closet to hide my shame don't worry about it it's fine um but it's white. Yeah, it, it was it was um yeah in any event i i just wanted to make sure i preface that with the idea of like we can't get too into the historicity because it's such a hard thing to well it's about. it's interesting because you do look up uh you do any sort of like basic research, you know, I didn't read the book like Mike, but I did a little bit of research going whatever. And uh, yeah, it's not, this movie's pretty much not historically accurate uh, on like almost any level, other than the fact that T Lawrence is a man that existed. World war one happened. That's kind of, that's kind of like it. Cause that you like read it. It's like, well, this battle didn't actually happen at this point. It happened later. This guy probably wasn't even there for it. Uh, you know, like all the sort of like the details of World War One are kind of like they're just kind of picking and choosing when they happen, whatnot. Uh, that you know, Lawrence may or may not have known about the 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 agreement at the end, all of this stuff, which I think is almost kind of to the point of what they were doing with this movie. That um, we're never going to know the truth. Uh, T, you know, Lawrence seems like he was maybe a bit of a bullshitter who believed his own hype. So let's kind of lean into that. Let's make, let's just make a movie about hubris and what war can do to a mind uh, and not in a, 
I don't even know if it's like not in a tragic way or a tragic way, but like this is the kind of guy who's primed to if he's given the opportunity during war to become a power hungry maniac. You know, it's uh, so it's cutting through. It's what's the quote? It's uh, movies aren't we're not looking for the facts. We're looking for the truth. Yeah. And this movie finds the truth at the heart of the story, which is, you know, this this guy was kind of primed to be turned into this figure. Like, no one else could have been this figure yeah. in this war, all, on, only him. And, and yet, I mean, one of the things I think is interesting about the way Lean chooses to depict him, you read historians who will talk, you know, attribute Lawrence and say, like, well, he basically invented guerrilla warfare, or... Well, he was his education was such that he understood X, Y, Z. David Lean has no interest in that, and ultimately, the only reason that he doesn't show Lawrence as a particularly great strategist either, he Lawrence's greatest skill, the reason he is able to reach Prince Faisal when no one else in the British government can, is he has this incredible skill called thinking the Arabs are people. <laughs> um, like no, truly, like I mean, no, like yeah. he set up things like him, you know, being willing to burn himself on the matches. The trick is not minding that it hurts. All of that, but you know, Lawrence spoke Arabic, and in fact, many of the the men and women serving in the map rooms during that time during World War One for the British did speak Arabic. But they go out of their way. I think in one of my favorite scenes, there's uh, you know, the other British general basically trying to tell Faisal, you don't know what you're talking about. You don't have discipline. You don't have X, Y, Z. You don't have any of these things. And Sharif doesn't trust him. Nobody trusts him. And meanwhile, there's uh, Faisal's, uh, you know, I, I'm guessing Imam, whatever you want to call him, who is there quoting the Quran, right? Which, by the way, there is a great anecdote in the behind the scenes about the fact that that actor who had to read those or speak those memorized portions of the Quran, all of the onset advisors were basically putting a lot of pressure on him because you can't misquote the Quran, yeah. right? Like you can't change a word. So he would have to, he had to memorize this more than anybody has ever memorized lines fucking ever. <laughs> and apparently O'Toole and Sharif had gotten so used to the way that this guy had come up with like a pattern for the way to deliver the lines. Like, and the sun shall not set, that they just kept cracking up during takes. And this poor bastard would have to do it again and again and again. But, but I love that scene because all it takes for Faisal to look at Lawrence differently is the fact that Lawrence knows the Quran. And then later when Faisal goes, what do you think? Well, I think that your book is right. The ocean, you know, the desert is an ocean and all that. Like, all it really took in some ways to make inroads with Prince Faisal was to essentially have one British person go, maybe we don't know everything. Maybe we should understand the people we're trying to work with. And, and I love that Lean focuses on that, and he doesn't give us scenes, like, for example, yes, Lawrence says, oh, we should approach by land instead of by sea, because they're used to the British version. But he doesn't give us a scene that, like, a more traditional biopic would do, which is, like, Lawrence comes up with the brilliant idea of let's blow up the Turk's train tracks. No, he just... He really is just trying to emphasize, like, you know, truly Lawrence's greatest gift was an admiration for the people he was trying to help and sincerely wanting to help them. 
that was the secret weapon. Yeah, I want to kind of below from that, like, well, this uh, the way the movie characterizes Lawrence is like, like uh, Tommy mentioned, like, it's uh, leading to that myth, myth making, and it's just so fascinating that even I don't, I can't only imagine how it felt back then, but well, it's funny, I I didn't know it was the same year as um Gregory Peck in uh, Kill Mockbird. Wow, yeah. jeez, such a competition, but also like that that right there, like Gregory Peck in Kill Mockbird, he's like the iconic figure of um positive masculine man he's strong yeah. but wise and kind but he can you know he can has what he has to do lawrence or the way Peter O'Toole plays him he's so foppish and weird yeah he's a fucking yeah. freak but like, like yes. <laughs> that's it and like they don't shy away from that like the all the other the general all the other officers all the other uh the the tribesmen they always comment he's just like this is a weird fucking dude and that's part yeah. of like again that's part of a, maybe again the Becoming the power he has, like um, he can be weird like this, and like just the, the being so almost all putting to some degree, kind of gives him that weird like uh, mystique in a way. And again, like, is it because he would be like that, or is 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 we kind of embellishing that? It doesn't really matter. Like, it, it, it just like characters, icons throughout history have this certain mystique about them. They are weird people. Like that's what makes them interesting and unique. Yeah, just just really, really, really interesting. Like, like I said, I don't know, I don't know how it was back then, but like you see in my in modern eyes, it's like this guy's a fucking weirdo. It was great. I mean, I mean, when he starts dancing in his new, you know, Arabic robes, yeah. and then Anthony Quinn just stumbles upon him and looks at him like, "What the fuck are you doing?" doing? <laughs> Which, by the way, by the way, they improvised that on set. He basically said, "Okay, so we have." He he. Apparently, David Lean came to Peter O'Toole and went, "Petey, because it's David Lean. Petey, there's a hole in the script. What do you mean? They give you the robes, and then later you have the scene. There's a hole in the script. What do you want to do? What should Lawrence do? What would a young man do with these robes? And so uh, O'Toole like was like, I think I have an idea. Lean took him out into the desert, found that flat of land where O'Toole does his twirl and all." set up three cameras and said, here's your stage. So O'Toole twirls and then, on a whim, O'Toole made this up. He was like, oh, I would want to look at myself. I have this blade. I'll use it for the reflection. And he looks at the reflection in the blade for that scene. Again, improvised, right? And then he said, O'Toole's telling the story and he says, once he pulled out the knife and looked at it, he heard David from behind one of the cameras go, clever boy. <laughs> and that caused Lean to come up with, okay, later you're going to look at yourself again and the knife is covered in blood. Mm. Like that was where that comes from. I didn't mean to like jet in too much, but when you mentioned that scene, I just wanted to make sure I got that anecdote on the record. So. Well, it's, and, and to jump off of both of what you guys are saying, uh, you know, showing that his biggest strength in his place in history is that he treated them like people and that, he was kind of this weird guy that was able to disarm everybody to get into this position. I also think it's important to note that this movie makes it very clear a lot of what makes him successful is sheer just shit ass luck. Yeah. Yeah. That he 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 literally just oh yeah, I'll find Faisal, I'll find a guy and he'll take me and whatever and then, you know, they just stumble upon Omar Sharif, who kills his guy, and then he's just like, "Hey, asshole, you killed my friend." <laughs> you know, Sharif could have just straight up killed his ass. You know, lucky, 
um, going through to Akaba and having to go back for the guy who falls off the camel. How the f- that's luck. There's no strategy there. It's just like, oh, I'll just go back what with whence we came. Oh. No, he could be anywhere, you dumb shit. <laughs> they were telling you going in a straight line might kill you. Going back, then going forward again? What are you even doing? Because then you get no. into the second half in the intermission where it's just like he's bombing the trains. And they no. keep telling him like, well, every time you do this, you're losing men. What, what, What's your plan? Oh, they'll come back. That's not a plan. <laughs> you're going to run out of guys soon enough. And then, lo and behold, he does. And then he just, cocky man that he is, strolling through the streets with fucking Omar Sharif. And they're like, oh, no, they, they, won't, they won't notice me if I'm in my Ar- Arabian robes. And they're like, immediately, like, no, 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 you're not Arabian. Come with us. Excuse me. Come with us right now. <laughs> It, and it's just sheer luck that he was able to become the icon and even survive any of this. Yeah. But that's but that's a key question, Tom, that I think the film asks. Because you say luck. And I think what the film wants us to question is, is it luck or is it fate? Because there is a running theme where they have that conversation about it is written, right? You know, Allah has written it all. And Lauren says, nothing is written. Right. And at first, Sharif buys that as an inspiration, kind of like a, oh, you know, Lawrence, truly for some, nothing is written. But then later, you, you can't go back, you know, uh, it is written. Uh, nothing is written. Some things are, you know, and Lawrence is already going back on that, but it works. Right. And I think that the idea of fate versus luck, Lawrence tries to tell the Arabs, nothing is written. Right. And yet, Lawrence consistently acts with the confidence of someone like Tom, like you were saying, like, well, I'll find Faisal and I'll stuff. Lawrence always acts with the confidence of it is written, right? He, he acts with that confidence. And I think that one of the fascinating things about Lawrence as a character is he was able to help win this, this front. You know, there's no arguing that. But, you know, how much of it, as I said, how much of it was fate, how much of it was luck, and also how much of it was contrived. Because you have the photographer show up who is, I mean, in the movie, he's saying, uh, I want to convince the Americans to join the war. In fact, we were already in the war at that point, And he was like, well, I want to raise the spirits. And one thing I found fascinating reading the introduction to this version of Seven Pillars of Wisdom is they talked about part of why T.E. Lawrence was such a celebrity. Nobody, like, we don't talk about the Eastern Front during World War I that often, the reason why it was such a triumph, I mean, when Seven Pillars of Wisdom came out in the UK, it was the second highest selling book after the Bible. It was a big hit. Um, part of the reason he became such a celebrity, which I hadn't even considered, is World War I is a terrible war. Britain has nothing to be proud of on the Western Front. They're just like, more men are dead. More men are dead. Everything's bad. Everything's terrible. We needed heroes from World War I, and suddenly you have this white guy in the desert who is helping the Arabs, who is uniting the Arabs against the Turks. This white guy in the desert who is going to ostensibly bring down the Ottoman Empire, which we have to consider, you know, the Ottoman Empire was this kind of, this thing that existed as like a stalemate for the rest of the empires throughout the world like as long as the ottoman empire stood 
from the English standpoint, they're like, look, we don't want the Ottoman Empire around because we'd love to have that land. But as long as the Ottoman Empire's around, at least the French and the Russians can't get it. Yeah. And France and Russia, they're thinking the same things. So the idea that a, a British man could lead the Arabs to take out the Ottoman Empire, then it's like, well, surely he'll win all this cheddar for us. Um, I, I say all that because there is this idea of Lawrence. You know, uh, Vice, you mentioned, well, he was so foppish. He was so not the typical masculine image. There is an element to Lawrence, which is the idea of, you almost feel like the British propaganda arm was sitting back and going, God, I really wish that we had a more traditional war hero to hold up, but uh, this weird, you know, this weird, pale, foppish masochist is all we got. So if he wants to write a book that talks about, you know, his experiences in the war and his, uh, his repulsion to the idea of sex and all of that. Like, if he wants, listen, it's the only book we're getting. It's not going to be somebody saying well, they well, left us all to die in the trenches. So, yeah. well, well to be fair, up. what's more, what's more British than a repressed guy who likes to kill minorities? The beginning of the movie, I thought, makes it. You know, the movie, the beginning of the movie is so brilliant because it does kind of make the point that the people who knew Lawrence the least have the most respect for him. Yeah. Yeah, that there's you know you go to that funeral and and because uh, honestly truthfully the first time I saw the movie, I did not even pick up on the I just was kind of you know it's a long movie you miss some things I didn't even pick up on the fact that the guy at the beginning who gets so offended when he's like sir I, well, I shook his hand once yeah I shook his hand is the one that yeah. you know his only real interaction with Lawrence besides shaking his hand is yelling unacceptable you know uh, at him. When it's when he's at the hospital, because you know he doesn't notice this, so I just think that yeah. I was just thinking about uh, this discussion about how the movie's getting, you know, is discussing the is it destiny, is it not destiny thing, and I definitely think the movie's having that conversation, and the characters are having their arcs of believing and whatnot. But I think what the movie's doing, because it has the benefit of hindsight. And now, even us, 60 years removed from the movie, even more hindsight, I think the movie very much ends on there is no destiny. It was all sheer luck, because why would destiny put this guy who does clearly have such a respect and admiration for this people, put him in such a position that the Middle East is going to become a hellhole for the next 100 years of people that don't live there? fighting over it and saying well no it should be ours no it should be ours but there's oil but there's this well, i think it's it's very interesting you know in the 60s you know it may not have been as bad as it was as it's you know 60 years later but the movie is kind of clearly ending on the point of the middle east is going to get a little rocked now because England kind of tricked this guy into doing their dirty work and priming them up for the this accord that's going to chop up the land for these whiteies that don't even really fucking know anything about these people. But so I, I think would... I I don't think that I don't think what you're saying is wrong because mm -hmm. I think Sharif and and O'Toole's characters definitely have that sort of fluctuation within the movie itself. I just think in the grand scheme of the movie, the omniscient David Lean of the movie wants you to 
the audience to end on that there was no destiny because destiny would not have allowed this guy to kind of ruin this land in such a way i would counter though that there's two elements uh to that one i think the reason when you're talking about like well destiny wouldn't allow i mean part of the issue that lawrence has and it's brought up early on in the film he has an admiration for the arab culture right and we say arab because that was the term at the the, the time i'll read a portion of the book that gets into that but but um he has an admiration for the people and the culture in the abstract, right? The same way that, like, to put it in a modern context, I mean, how many, how many people do we know uh, that will uh, go see all of, you know, how many film critics do we know that go see all of the quote-unquote important black films and talk about how much they really appreciate black culture and that they, they put the little black squares on their Instagram page and also have been the most privately racist motherfuckers on the place on the face oh, of the Oh, privately, earth, right? So, but but think about Lawrence. You know, early on in the film, and it's it's a it's a it's a very blunt examination of this in the film too. Lawrence, despite having all this admiration, right? After you know, he turns to Sharif and he goes, you know, the uh, behavior like this, the Arab people will always be a silly people, a little people, greedy, barbarous, cruel. And then later, it, that comes up twice more. Faisal, when he's talking to him to tell him, I got ears everywhere, goes, well, you know, to you, we, the Arab people, we're a silly people, greedy, barbarous, cruel, you know? And Lawrence's response is like, well, you don't have to be. Which is telling. Because Lawrence seems to think he has an admiration for the Arab people, but he also thinks he's above them. He also thinks, I can civilize them, I can westernize them, I can now. Um, this is going to be a confusing sentiment. Uh, I know for you, Vice. Stick with me here, because um, you obviously talked about the you know the, the conflict you served in, and this isn't related at all. Lawrence, this white guy um, who only knows Arab culture from books, seems to think that he can bring democracy and Western ideals to the Middle East. <laughs> stick with me. Stick with me. It's a quagmire because a bunch of white westerners decide i'm going to bring democracy to the middle east and i will be greeted as a liberator <laughs> stick with me here but even just like his uh, even his, in his uh day-to-day dealing as it were as as when he goes on where he's uh as he's interacting with the tribes themselves and then when you see them do their day-to-day business but that in the context of their tribal society at the time that day-to-day business included like um like blood feuds and uh, and executions yeah. And like he's like, and so you see him kind of th- that that kind of the reality hits of like, oh, I have this romanticized uh, idea of, of the Arabic world as he calls it. But it's like, nah, you know, she, she gets real, son. You gotta get ready for this. And then into well, it, and there's there's also well, that no, element. It's, yeah, you were talking. I, well, about, I think. Oh, I'm, uh, we're all just just it, jumping all over I'm, each I'm other. I'm just saying, you know, you talked about that thing with the blood feuds, right? Yeah. And that pivotal scene where. Lawrence risked his life to save this guy, and then this guy threw his life away to kill some guy from another tribe because of some, you know, Hatfields and McCoy-ass blood feud. And Lawrence is going, well, that's, you know, basically going, that's stupid, this is dumb, I'll kill him if it means it'll end the feud, because Lawrence thinks he's better than these foolish, you know, primitive Arabs who can't see past their tribes, right? And they're willing to fuck everything up because of their tribalism. And then what happens? He goes back to the British camp in Cairo, 
the British generals are sitting there, and uh, and Claude Rains is there, and he goes, "Well, a fella named Sykes and a fellow named Pico came together and decided that the French will have this portion, and we need to let the British have this portion." And it's like, and there's Lawrence having to stand there, and essentially, whether he knows it in the moment or not, he's like, "Oh right, our tribes, the the British tribe and the French tribe, have a blood feud going." all the way back to like the 1200s and we're dividing up this Middle East land that isn't ours because of a blood feud that we have going back to the fucking Crusades. Like he has to accept, you know, that like... But see, isn't that also, I think also a part of what I'm kind of getting into, which is that, yeah, he he looks down on the Arabic people, you know, all their blood feuds and all that stuff and all that. But we see in the beginning before he gets sent off he thinks he's better than everybody yes yeah it it, this isn't a this isn't a guy who thinks oh well you know brit you know brit might is right it's it's just straight up well no i'm better than everybody because i'm smart and i'm scholarly and i can put out matches and not feel pain and i'm you know this weird little man and whatever but it's like no he thinks he's better than everybody he thinks he can go you know, he tells, you know, in that before the intermission, he says, don't send me back. It's going to make me crazy. But then he accepts because in his egotistical mind, he thinks I can make an impact in in in, in this land. It, you know, these guys, they're going to let me do the right thing and we're going to do the right thing for the Arabic people. And then as he leaves, we watch this Claude Rains and the general just like, well, no, fucking this idiot's just going to do what we want. And he's, yeah. we're going to cut everything up and everything's going to be fine. He doesn't know. He's so myopic in his own egotism and narcissism that he doesn't realize he's not better than anybody. And that um, my what I was trying to get at with the, the Destiny thing is more so like the movie ends it, tragically of just, we fucked this place up. Mm-hmm. And I don't think the movie w- is trying to make the point it was Destiny for this place to get ruined because of how clearly anti-colonial the movie is and how clearly anti-colonial david lean is within making this movie i i think it would just be a weird way to end your movie going oh well they're making the argument that it was destiny for england to take over this place can i can i offer one other counter that which is the other element that's going on in this film to me um that i think is present and it's not doing it too much look you can never actually make a film about the origins of Islam, right? You have that uh, little hurdle that Mustafa Akkad had to kind of get over, which is, I want to make a movie about the founding of Islam. I also can't on screen depict any of the major (laughs) figures of the founding of Islam. He ends up making The Message and actually casts Anthony Quinn in it. It's a cool movie. Check it out. But anyway, there are elements, in the same way that like Dune is partly drawing from the, the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, uh, and also, you know, uh, elements of that. Lawrence is also building on that um, because I think, Tom, you know, when I'm talking about destiny, I don't, I don't think the film is saying it is destiny. I think it's playing with the concept of destiny because when you consider the fact that if you are modeling this and the story of Lawrence, Lawrence is essentially a prophet, right? Instead of getting messages from God, he's coming going, I have all these things from the British government. I have all this military strategy. I have this whatever. And I'm coming here, and I am going to, I'm going to have the people worshiping me, right? I mean, and similarly, like, consider that if you're contending with the origins of 
Islam, which is this military, you know, force that united the Arab world, got all of these people speaking Arabic, you know, had a message that was saying, hey, get over all of a lot of your tribal superstitions, stop burying girl babies in the desert, things like that. Uh, you know, so solid, solid, but seriously, like solid, you know, that kind of thing. But then ultimately, like what you have in that story, you have the story of a prophet with the word of God coming down and saying, I did it. I have united the people. I have done all of this. And then ultimately, just like that scene with the Arab Congress, you know, similarly, like you have a story where essentially this man, this extraordinary figure, this extraordinary prophet came in, united all of these people, had these military victories. That's it. Destiny. It all came together, dies. And then immediately people go, who should take over? I don't know. Should it be like a guy related to him? Should it be this general that was there? I don't know. But we're probably going to fight about this ever since like 600 something AD to now. That even then, like the actual story there. So I think that I'm not suggesting um, that the movie is saying uh, that, you know, that destiny would allow uh, Lawrence so much that like there is that real world parallel of like, even the most significant real world story in the Middle East of like, hey, we did it. We've got a religion. We've got a mandate from God. It still comes apart because of like factionalism and petty squabbles. So that's kind of well, what I'm saying in terms of the destiny parallels there. Well, no, I listen. I, that's why I'm saying I think both things are happening. And I think almost as a counter to what you're saying, I don't think the I think the Muhammad uh, Islam stuff you, you were just saying is is, you know, accurate. I also think there's a bit of a Christianity thing oh, going on sure. through this yeah. movie. They make it explicit, and well, because I hear like some of the lines, it's like, uh, "You're not." He, he's going to cross Sinai, like Moses. He, and he got, and then his friend says, "I'm not. You're not Moses." He's like, yeah, yeah, I'm a prophet, though, whatever. Like, he's, yeah, Moses and, was a prophet. Yeah, and, and he's saying, and, and like this kind of, it's, it's almost like a reference. It's a reference for us or the Western audience too to like kind of see where he's coming from. Like he, Lawrence having known having that background of the Quran would probably saying shit like that. So for us as an audience, like we can see again, like he's using biblical, biblical references upon himself. And yeah, and like, that's part of it. Like, okay. Like those movies, like a, him buying his own bullshit and, and kind of flex weights throughout the movie. Like uh, in the beginning, he's like, he's a hot shit. And then there's a certain part where he says, where he, he says, uh, after a really terrible incident, he says, I'm just an ordinary man. I want to be, I want to have an ordinary job. He says this. And immediately, almost almost immediately after saying that, he's like, "I'm going back to the fight." Like he's he waffles himself because for again, it's that, that that ego is just too strong. That that and so like, and so he he has he's building his own myth, building his own like aura, and because he maybe because he has to in a way too, like like not just because the, the ego is so strong, yeah. but like he has to believe in something. So he's like, "I'm I'm gonna keep believing in this thing, even when even as even though." Things get progressively worse for not just himself, but of course, people around him. He's trying to help, essentially. And so, well, like, this is the side note, but like, the, like uh, biblical text or religious text, like even the story of Jesus is the same way. As far as the four different gospel writers have wildly different interpretations of what mm -hmm. Jesus is. Yeah. And the point being, like, I, think, I forget, I think it was the uh, John's gospel where it kind of directly crib off the, well, there's only one gospel of the four. That have the whole story about the um, king. Jesus is a baby trying to escape the king. Yeah, 
and that's, that's purposely was written that way to like kind of basically have the Jewish readers buy into quote unquote to fit prophecy. Yeah. yeah that, that Jesus is the actual Messiah. But that's just one of, yeah. it's just one, one of the four interpretations. See like that, that the whole myth thing, like you have to buy, believe it yourself, believe your own bullshit to make it work. It's so crazy. Yeah. You see, you see it, you see it playing out. It's uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, this, this kind of remind me of the, uh, the Ten Commandments film, actually, you know, in a way, uh, yeah, again, just like the, the scope and scale. Again, it's a long, it's a long ass fucking movie too. <laughs> it's also just like it feels very pointed to you know at what what would kind of be the picturesque version of Christ at the time in the sixties, blonde haired, blue eyed, pretty boy, white yeah, white robe, strolls, yeah. yeah, white robe strolls into the desert in the Middle East, <laughs> starts telling everybody he knows how things need to be, yeah. And uh, the second he's gone from the Middle East, everything turns to shit, and the white people take over. Um, I mean, shit, like, you know, he he has his trek through the desert, yeah. uh, which also kind of doubles as his death and resurrection, which helps build up his myth amongst all of the tribes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it, it it's It's almost like an atheistic version of, it's like an atheist story of, like, people buy in, buying into this religious idea, and it does there is no destiny. This guy was just in the right place at the right time. And he fucked everything up for you. <laughs> you guys don't realize it because he thought he was doing the right thing, but he was a myopic idiot and he fucked everything up for you guys trying to do the right thing. Yeah. There was no, like, he's not the prophet. He's not this guy who's here to bring you guys into a new sense of unity. He's just an egotistical weirdo who got played by the British government. Yeah. And he was just, he was the useful idiot that the gov British government needed at the right time. And I, wanna... I, but I think all of this is just like, I, I just think all, like this whole discussion is part of why the fucking movie's great because yeah. it doesn't, it, other than saying it sucks that Britain, that the British Empire and the French took over the Middle East. It really doesn't give you easy answers of like, well, what's it trying to say about Lawrence? Is he this guy? Is he that guy? Is it this? Is it that? It's, it's just like for, again, like for, you know, we the myth. What you talking about myths? The myth of Hollywood and how we didn't get deep, complicated, complex antihero like you know, don't hold your hand movies until the seventies, and you got this fucking thing, this four hour, fucking movie about World War One. Just just comes in and it's just like, nah, bro, you ain't wanna, gonna know what way is up and what way is down in this movie. I I want to go back to something Vice brought up, which is specifically you know the scene where Lawrence quotes the Quran because I was thinking about that. Um, so there are obviously there are two uh, surahs quoted in the in the film. You know the guy reading them. One I believe is seventy three, but the other one, the one that Lawrence actually finishes, right? The guy speaks it, then Faisal speaks it, and Lawrence speaks it, is uh, is Surah ninety three. And I, I found that really interesting because it would be easy to just say he's picking random, you know, you could pick random surahs. There's a bunch of them. But they picked one on purpose because if you know it, it's a, it's a little bit about Lawrence. Now, obviously, the actual surah is, is as all of them are, is, is God speaking to the prophet, right? And, and the prophet, you know, was, was an orphan and he's speaking to him. But so the lines we get in the movie are... I swear by the early hours of the day and the night when it covers with darkness, your Lord has not forsaken you, nor has he become displeased. Mind you, I'm reading from my own, like a copy that I have, which is a different translation than the movie, so I might not be verbatim the film, but um, 
I swear by the early hours of the day and the night when it covers with darkness, your Lord has not forsaken you, nor has he become displeased. And surely what comes after is better for you than what has gone before. And soon will your Lord give you so that you shall be pleased. Those are the lines, that last line is what Lawrence finishes. Here's what I find interesting is that the rest of the surah goes on. Did he not find you an orphan and give you shelter? Now, remember, Lawrence addresses the fact he wasn't an orphan, but he was a bastard, right? He was born out of wedlock, and that hangs over him. Did he not find you as an orphan and give you shelter, and find you lost, unrecognized by men, and guide them to you, and find you in want, and make you to be free from want? Therefore, as for the orphan, do not oppress him. As for him who asks, do not chide him. And as for the favor of your Lord, do announce it. I think that that is a fascinating choice to pull because, again, you only get the first half in the film, but the remainder of that surah is, in as much as it's spoken to the prophet, it's, it's describing Lawrence and saying to him, both addressing, like, perhaps why Lawrence feels so drawn to the Arab people because he feels like an outcast in his own life, yeah. right? As a bastard. Um, and as somebody, let's face it, of Irish descent mm. right. in the British Empire. But also, the message of that surah is going, hey, you were an orphan and, and you know, Allah took care of you, so take care of these orphans. Like, basically treat these people as you'd want to be treated. And that's a message that Lawrence doesn't actually get, hmm. is that he's leading these people, but he doesn't actually put himself in their place, right? He doesn't... He can be petty, and he can feel these emotions, but when they feel those emotions, he's quick to condemn them as greedy, barbarous, cruel. Like, he fails to put himself in that place, and that surah is, is so particularly basically going, like, look, I may be giving you these messages, but don't go thinking that puts you above these other people. Yeah. You were an orphan once. Do not think you're better than the orphans now. And Lawrence's issue was... He came into the desert an orphan. He came into the desert as somebody that the British basically went, that guy drawing maps is weird. <laughs> Send him away. We do not think he'll be able to do anything. Just because you came back and you did things, do not forget that you were an orphan and don't forget about the orphans. I think that's just a fascinating choice. Again, they could have pulled any quotes. They could have pulled a quote just because they thought it sounded nice. Yeah. But they did have a bit of foreshadowing there. That is really kind of only there if you know the Quran, mm. which is kind of like, I don't know, if you're Norwegian and watching The Thing. <laughs> and when in Norwegian, like, yo, that dog, that dog's an alien. Like, the <laughs> Norse people in the audience are like, oh, good, I know where this is going now. <laughs> you know, and everybody else is going, what? You know, I, I, I just wanted to, I wanted to make sure I acknowledge that because I think that's such a great little, little thing that Lean includes. Um, uh, a, a bit that I think is very important at getting at, kind of almost jumping at what you're saying, but also like getting at the core of Lawrence as a character, is towards the end when they do uh, one of their raids on the train and Anthony Quinn gets all of this, he gets all his loot. Mm -hmm. And one of the British, uh, not a general, ma major or whatever, the, the one guy who was in, who was in with Faisal at the beginning, he's there again. And he's, saying, he's telling Anthony Quinn, oh, it's wrong that all these men are looting. It, they're thieves. And he goes, no, that's, that's what war is. We, we do this, we take some shit, and we go home. Like, well, I would never go home. I'm not a cow. 
no, you're going to go home when you get what you want. Mm -hmm. I got what I want. I'm going home. And that's kind of the important thing, which this movie very clearly does not tell you. Lawrence doesn't know what he wants. Mm -hmm. He's not here for any particular goal. He's just here to feel like a god. <laughs> he is just here for the power and the messianic qualities that all of these people are bestowing upon him. He loves what they're doing to him. Yeah. Like he's not there for I'm going to free them. Uh I'm going to I'm going to free the it's like oh we're going to blow up trains. Well, you keep losing people when the trains when you blow up a train. It's like you're having it each time. Ah, don't worry, we'll figure it out. So what actually are you doing, my man? Yeah. It's really just he's just He's just high in his own supply. You know, that's really, and I think that's kind of like a very key, key moment in like this whole just, you know, just four hour. <laughs> so actually, let's talk about the, the actual, the war movie part of the movie for a minute. You know, yeah. those two rage. And then probably one of the, one of the um, major scenes thematically is that when you see him, um, the bloodlust that eventually takes that over him. It's a very, very critical film, yeah. scene, you know. So yeah, but like, uh, and then again, um, and I, we, actually, one of the, the quotes from earlier that we talked about where he's they describe the Arabic people as a uh, as savage brutes, and then, well, uh, well, to go to context of the film, uh, the the, uh, the Turkish soldiers on their way for fleeing an area, they ransack a village, you know, rape, murder, pillage, mm -hmm. and so uh, the uh, Lawrence and his and his uh, army find this, and so they go to uh, basically extract revenge upon them. But really, just uh, you the sexy, but the bloodlust, and so Lawrence, when the, once the battle ensues, he gets caught up, and it's just it's they they frame it really well. They frame it like a he's not like um he's not a furor or in a fury. He's just he's in a panic. He can't even control what he's doing. He's just like he waving his pistol around, and like he's so caught up in the the chaos of war that he on his, he kind of thinks or he intuits that oh I should go kill. But he can't even comprehend how to do it properly. Like, like a true warrior understands, uh, understands that. Well, well, we had different words for it. Um, the, the scale. Uh, oh, but proportional force. Well, proportion. Like because he doesn't understand. He's just, he's just, he's kind of waving around wildly. And so then, once he's once the battle's finally over, and you see him again, he's covered in blood and shaking and crying, like not a heroic. I picture it all. He looks like a fucking just like a piece of shit that's that's animal that's had to just, just fight or kill, kill another animals, or in his mind. Yeah, and, and Sharif looks. You know, he's after the fact after the battle. They they, they kind of pretty like, what, what, you know, well, he, who are you to, to who are you to um, tell me about bloodshed? But also they say, oh, uh, uh, you know, look at who else, who else but Arabs could do this? I wonder, be barbarous and savage and cruel. <laughs> like, like and greedy. Who else? Hmm. I wonder. Nope. Only as Arabs. And you know this this whole campaign of, of blood and, and fire was mainly for the most part Lawrence is doing. So like again that that really says a criticism where they say it without saying it. But like it's so clear that yeah like no who who is this who's the actual savage here? And you know, it's like no it's, and I guess in reality it's all of us. But like that's also the point. You was like this. The savagery is not the domain of one single othered people. It's, it's, it's so that when I alluded to my favorite scene in any movie ever, 
as I'm sure Tom knew, he's known me long enough to know this is what I meant. This is the scene. Yeah. Um, that performance that Peter O'Toole gives before he even yells no prisoners, that face acting is incredible. Um, one of the reasons I love it so much is the movie has been creating this dynamic where, in a way, there's kind of the cartoon angel and devil on his shoulder, which is, Omar. on the one hand, Omar Sharif, who represents... Lawrence has actually been turning him intellectually, right? He's been winning over Sharif on the idea of, like, you can be better, right? I can, air quotes, civilize you, right? Like, you can come to England and study and all of that. And he's winning him over. And then the sort of devil on his shoulder, the kind of spirit of the desert, is Anthony Quinn's character, right? The one who's going to take his gold when he gets it. And that's why Quinn at the end is like, well, Lawrence, you, you live for the desert. Like, that's, that's what it is. What I think is so great, um, and why I love that scene so much, is that instead of making the dynamic, you know, the whole movie, that's been the dynamic, right? And you're wondering, like, who's going to win out? It's the fact that it's a random guy, an actor we've barely seen in the film, whose voice is ADR'd, just going, no prisoners, right? <laughs> that it's not... A, a hackier film would basically have, like, you know, Omar Sharif going, well, let me explain to you why we shouldn't do this. And then Anthony Quinn on the other side going, Lawrence, there's a good reason to do. But instead, <laughs> all you get, besides O'Toole's incredible face acting, is just, you know, Sharif going, Lawrence, Damascus, Lawrence, Damascus. No prisoners. Yeah. Lawrence, Damascus. And what I love about that, even in that moment, the guy is again, this is a gruff ADR voice just going no prisoners. This is a this is a voice that is not attached to a person in a way. Right? The ultimate voice of like the devil of temptation. And then even with Sharif, he's not just saying that Sharif's performance is so good in that because when he's saying Damascus, he's not just saying, No, 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 Lawrence, stick to the plan. But the way he delivers Damascus is as though he's saying, That is what this is about, right? Like yeah. this, I've been telling myself there's higher ideals to this. I've been telling myself this isn't just about killing. I need to know that this is not just about killing. And then obviously, you know, the guy runs out, gets shot. And the, it's that moment. It's the way that O'Toole delivers no prisoners, right? Yeah. Um, and then the, we see him maybe twice during that sequence. And they are these haunting images. They, I, I can't describe it properly, but Lean just manages to incorporate this shot. We get to see a lot of emotion on Omar Sharif's face. Lawrence, he just, this is one shot of Peter O'Toole with his mouth agape, grin on his face. It looks like a mask, you know? It looks like one of those, like, rubber paralyzed masks, you know, or like a wax sculpture where he's just tilted. It looks like the cover of Radiohead's The Bends. He's just, ah, and it's, it's, it's it's haunting and upsetting and and the last thing I'll say on on that scene because I don't want to I could go for hours but to take it back to that Islamic ties like it's fascinating that even then you can draw a parallel to you know when you look at the story of the, the founding of Islam one of the things that often gets brought up uh, people might have heard of it is the um the the massacre or the invasion of the Banu Guraysha. Um, you know, obviously, if you if you read the Quran, you're supposed to be under the impression that you're, you know, everything that the prophet did and everything that that's what you should model yourself after, right? Um, and a lot of these battles are valiant battles. You know, 
But the massacre of the Benegoratia was essentially the Benegoratia were a Jewish tribe, uh, and I'm just going to be going off of a, a book here. I'm not going to be trying to cast this version. They were a Jewish tribe that were allied with the Muslims in their cause. They loaned them equipment, but they refused to fight in in one of the battles because they were offended by some of the attacks. Uh, some say there was a treaty that was torn apart. Others don't. Um, but essentially, uh, the prophet says he was commanded by God they have to besiege the Banagoratia. The Banagoratia surrender. And when they were trying to decide what to do with them, uh, one, uh, I believe, uh, you know, some people came to him uh, and said, we should, we should treat them leniently. And others were like, we should be harsh. And he essentially, uh, the prophet basically turned to a guy named uh, Saad ibn Muad. Uh, who had been injured by an arrow during the conflict, goes to him and says, it's your call. What do you think we should do? Which doesn't, you know, if you're trying to square this text, not turning to, you know, to God and going like, give me a sign, just like, all right, this guy's got an arrow. And I'm like, what, what do you think we should do? And, and the guy says, the men should be killed, the women and the children taken as slaves. And, and the prophet uh, approves of the ruling, says, well, that's in accordance with God's decree. And like, and they just, you know, I think hundreds of people, uh, the approximation is like 600 to 900 people are killed. Mm. And you listen to people who talk about this. And you listen to scholars who basically say, like, this is one of the toughest things to square in our faith, yeah. is the idea of what was, what was this about? Like, this is such a, like, such a pivotal moment of like, well, it seems like you went to the guy who had the arrow through him and and you said like this this is the well that's not the person to judge and in the same way like i think it's such a one to one because you create this character rather than have it be anthony quinn you create this character whom well that was his village yeah right and it would be very easy for lawrence to go that was his village he feels wronged by this not really the best judge of character on this one so maybe you know but instead lawrence just that becomes his excuse to this yeah whether it's desert well, madness or whether it's actually you know god stepping in and going yes lawrence go massacre these people like it's you know it's it's a great parallel i all that stuff dead on accurate love that what i love about it is is that it is kind of a conflagration of two gigantic hypocrisies of lawrence coming together at once leading to this moment of his bloodshed because this is after he gets taken by the turks and is tortured and is thrown away so all of this is happening because he got hurt and embarrassed by the Turks, yeah. which again goes back to the very first, well, not the very first scene, but before the match cut, him saying, you have to mind that it doesn't hurt, which is clearly bullshit because <laughs> if he didn't mind getting hurt, him getting tortured by the, by the Turks wouldn't have been that much of a deal. And then it wouldn't have turned him into such a stark raving madman yeah. that when the opportunity arises and all of this madness is, is going on for him to start, he's fighting within himself. Clearly he's conflicted about what's going on in his own mind. But then that egotism comes in. They hurt me. How dare they hurt me? I'm supposed to be the guy you don't hurt. I don't mind the pain. Fuck it. Yeah. Kill them all. This is no longer about, there's no more pretense about this is for the Arabic, Arabic people. There's no pretense of we're doing this for the right reason. Yeah. They hurt me. Fuck them. Yeah. And again, like even when, he, even when that comes out of him too, like 
he can, it's not even framed as a righteous or a yeah like a revenge like, like a not a it's not trumpet revenge it's like he's terrified doing you know or not even he, yeah. he's like out of his mind doing it he can't even yeah he can't even like uh, consolidate or grasp in his mind he's uh doing the revenge or, or you know especially like it's it just so much it's just so overwhelming that it's not even it's almost like not even worth it you know like he just, he just lost himself completely as opposed to like getting something back by doing revenge he's just, he's completely gone now and then they frame it as such like he's just like he's just a animal now pharaoh like with no all of his intellect he muzzle well, like muzzle well, why was that with his degree like that's where all that led him to is yeah. being in a yeah being in a bloody mess in the sand that's where it led him and 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 again, and it's like again, it's the bloody dagger. Yeah. And again, it's like the hypocrisy of he looks down on these Arabic Arabic people who where they have their blood feuds and everything. Oh, that all these personal things, they're ruining everything. They can't let it go. And it's like, bro, you couldn't fucking let exactly. it go. You committed a genocide. Yeah. You could like <laughs> you committed a goddamn war crime in the middle of the desert because you got you got whipped a bit. Yeah. Like, uh, like and, yeah, and yeah, I wanna guess mentioned it. Well, I don't know if so here, seeing this is my first time seeing this movie um, recently. One thing I didn't, and again, I don't have, I didn't do any um, specific research mm-hmm. about the history of Lawrence himself, other than just what I had learned academically, like yeah. I said, the cinema. So there's the scene that you mentioned about the, the, the uh, his his capture, which I didn't I didn't know about before. So I want to just talk about this for a, second, for a little bit because like uh, yeah, this this that definitely informs what follows through, like we just mentioned the yeah. the battle. So I didn't know that um, from all, from most accounts, they historically they seem to um seem to be the agreement is that um he was tortured and raped, um yes. in, in by by the uh, Turkish Turkish yes. army or well, specifically like a mayor or a provincial mayor uh in, in yeah. who was captured the, the Jose Ferrer character right right played by played by Academy Award nominee Jose Ferrer yeah yeah, yeah. Oh, no winner winner sorry yeah. Academy Award winner Jose Ferrer yes. yeah so yeah so actually and the thing is like a for maybe for obvious reasons or maybe not so obvious you don't hear about this scene much at least in, from my context i didn't yeah. even know the scene was in the movie but you don't hear about this scene too much or, or you don't hear about even when you talk about um like you know the the, the rape uh, revenge genre or whatever like mm-hmm. you don't hear of lawrence of arabia as one of those films that de- de- depicts it because nobody nobody ever t- says it they it always focuses on the uh, the white savior dynamic and how you know and how it um explores that but never this and 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 like, this is actually kind of weird that it's this is part of where it gets like the most real quote-unquote war movie because you know rape was a common weapon in war as well just as much as yeah. any you know um arms and so like you know this and then throughout the beginning of the film they they kind of comment that uh, lawrence is not fit for the field and then you see him kind of prove himself more or less you know, doing the long desert trekking stuff, the, the, and proving like proving he has like at least the uh, the stamina or ability to withstand the, the harsh desert environment. But then, like, this is probably between his capture, torture, and apparent sexual assault, and into into that leads up, and then and the aftermath when he escapes, going into the battle, you kind of see that no, this is the real, this is truly the reality of war. Because part of it is like uh, throughout the throughout those initial battles, even though rage in the rage. He doesn't actually kill anybody with his own hands during the first, the first, or the first mm-hmm. or the first part of his campaign. It's only after his assault you see, you, you physically see at least on film, you see him actually kill other people. So yeah, those were really fascinating. They did that because um again, like we really Tom's point, like a, he's not above any of this shit, but it's, but but also 
he's not even he's that's part of the myth. Like he survived this stuff, but maybe he wasn't built for it. He just again that that dumb luck that he survived this shit. You know, not everybody yeah. looking. Well, because like the movie says, like well, not it it doesn't say so much, but you kind of they pretty much tell you the only reason those Turks let him go is because they don't know they have Lawrence. Yeah, they just think well. You're either on that side or that side, but you're not you're not Arab- Arabic, so we got to figure out what the hell to do with you. So we're gonna torture you. Well, we didn't get any information. You're nobody. Just throw them out in the fucking out the door and whatever. Yeah. If like, if it's it's again that dumb luck. Yeah. If if they even got a hint, yo yeah, that oh this my God, was yeah. Lawrence. The only reason they caught, they captured him was just there's a white guy here. What the fuck what is, is he this? Doing? this yeah. is like no. Like no, obviously something's going on. But if it was a if if it was even a hint of like, oh, we think Lawrence is in the is is in the village. We got to be on the lookout for a white guy. It's it's literally just he just again like 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 I said, straight up dumb luck. Just yeah, and he's it, not built for this. Yeah, he's not just white though. He's English, and yes. it's important to remember that the reason the Turks are even involved in this conflict. I don't want to get too into World War One is confusing. <laughs> um, it just is. But, you know, the reason that they end up allying with the Russians is uh, because Churchill essentially, like, there was a whole conflict over ships, and Churchill, there was supposed to be ships, then Churchill, like, kept the ships away, and and that's why the Turks joined the Russians, because they were like, ah, fuck the English. So, it's not just that he's white, it's the fact that, here's Lawrence, right, who earlier, the guy, Gassim, who he came to rescue, like, he has to shoot Gassim because well, these, you know, these stupid tribes and their blood feud. And Lawrence is not just tortured, but, you know, he's he's sexually assaulted. And I think it's worth noting, you know, the reason he's sexually assaulted is it's not just, it's not just done as an act of gratification. It's done as an act of humiliation, yeah. right? It's not just done, you know, for some guy to satisfy an urge. It's done specifically because, well, we're going to, this Englishman thinks we're going to sexually humiliate him. And so this happens because when Lawrence was in the desert and it was the Arabs against the Turks, he was going to help the Arabs, but he didn't have really a dog in this fight, right? You know, in his mind, anyway, it's like, well, the British, they're not really interested in the Eastern Front, but to the Turks, they got an English guy. And now Lawrence is caught in the middle of the conflict between the two tribes of his world, right? The the civilized world. <laughs> He's caught in the conflict between the tribes. So I think it's important to, you know, bear in mind, you're right, Tom, they, they toss them out because they don't know they have Lawrence. Essentially, you know, one of the things Lee, Lean is telling us is, you know, we're just, the English is a tribe. Yeah. And, you know, I want to yeah. touch on that before we get too much more into the film. One thing we've kind of not addressed yet, we keep talking about, well, uh, David Lean made these small films, these black and white films, and then he's making Lawrence. It's important to remember the reason he has the budget for Lawrence and the power for all of that is that he makes the bridge on the River Kwai. Yes. A couple years earlier, in the late 50s, he makes the bridge on the River Kwai, which wins a bunch of Oscars and is a big epic hit, but even Bridge on the River Kwai is essentially David Lean going, being British is a cult. Mm-hmm. Like, in a way, he's like, yeah. you know, Bridge on the River Kwai is Alec Guinness now in the lead, Basically going like, well, chaps, we're going to build this bridge for them to show them the British work ethic. And only too late does he go, what have I, what, what have I done? <laughs> like, what, what on earth? So you can, you know, it's, it's fascinating, you know, to think about that, that 
that he makes Bridge on the River Kwai, which is him exploring these themes of like, what is the British identity? And then when he goes to make Lawrence of Arabia, he essentially makes T.E. Lawrence kind of this representative of the confusing British identity. And it's symbolized in a thing I didn't realize. Obviously, I had always known, you know, you watch the movie, and I'm not saying on the nose in a bad way. I'm saying it's blunt purposefully. That great scene toward the end of Act One when Lawrence and the boy come across the British motorcyclist whose face we'd ever see, and all you get is the British motorcyclist yelling, Who are you? Yeah. Who are you? And we're right on Lawrence's face. No attempt, like, we're, we're being blunt about what the theme of this movie is. Who are you on Lawrence? A thing I didn't know. That's David Lean's voice. Mm. David Lean himself yelling, who are you at Lawrence of Arabia? <laughs> just the, that I, I'm going to say it, baller move. I like that. <laughs> I like that, David, that you're just going right at it and being like, you want to know what the theme of the movie is? I am literally going to tell you. <laughs> Personally, I'm going to say it. I mean, the way... A lot of people on film Twitter act these mm, days. Yeah. They they want more movies to have the director yeah. come on screen <laughs> and tell you here's the theme. <laughs> um, also, just as Bridge on the River Kwai was doing the hey Brits being a Brit kind of sucks. It's a weird cult thing. We got to get a brief account is the same thing. Yeah, that's Literally true. Like, that's true. Hey, it sucks being British. Like we can't. We're just so repressed and weird. We can't. We just can't be with the people we love. Um, before we move on to other things, as we're no, still on this thing. Um, of all the things this movie has influenced and inspired, Vice, you watch a lot of war movies and a lot of action movies. Is this the this this has to be the first movie because I feel like a lot of war movies and action movies, more exploitation movies, do this. The Jose Ferrer character, the guy who's like the head of the platoon or the prison camp, who's a fucking rapist. Yeah, who's just like creepily in the door, just staring, and it's like, oh, this guy's this guy's about to go raping, yeah. like. This is in Rambo 4. This is str- like, like Stallone straight up stole the Jose Ferrer character and made him the bad guy in Rambo 4, of all things. Like I, I'm trying to remember if I've seen anything prior to this like, like that, because I know, well, well like, like I mentioned before, like, sadly, well, I mean, war is sad, but it's just to rape is a part, one, one weapon of war. And so, like, um, I'm trying to recall, you don't see a lot of... I, well, it's, well, I, it's kind of a different context because our part, part of the problem currently is that um, it's an inside job. We're like, we're like, it's a, you know, being the military, at least in the U.S. military, is dangerous for like, it's full of such fucking sexual predators. But you know, but no, like um, as far as, as far as your point, like cinema wise, yeah, I, I can't really think of like a, a too many things where it's like a very explicit part of it. Um, that, that or, or probably because like people just you know just a taboo. People so scared to, so scared to do it. So that, that's part of why I guess I was so surprised to see here. Not just because nobody talks about it, but like it's done so well for its for its time. I guess like he's still like a leering, like the musty, he's a the almost trolling mustache kind of thing. But he's like it's you, yeah. They kind of it's kind of um, they don't know that he that they have launched in their in their hands. So you think he's like he, when he's interrogating him at the first, you think he's like he's trying to like figure out, oh, is this a guy? Is this Lawrence? No, he's like he's like, oh yeah, fresh fish. Oh, I got I got I got white meat now. That's what he's doing. He grabs that titty. He grabs that titty. Yeah, he grabs, he's like, like Ooh, you got some white, you got some white skin. This is I, gonna be interesting. I mean, I will say when you're talking about that, one thing that I think that's present in. I mean, first off, you do see it a lot 
kind of the reverse in a lot of I would say somewhat more hacky Vietnam movies of the era where like you'll always have a scene where like one of the bad soldiers is about to assault a woman in a village and then yeah. our main soldier goes, Stop it, yeah, what are you yeah, doing? Yeah. But but I will but I think the interesting thing about the the, the sexual <laughs> assault scene the sexual assault scene the way that Lean plays it is that you're right, you don't necessarily see it a lot in in war movies, but what you do kind of see it in in some ways is British adventure stories prior to this, because uh, not explicitly, right? But there is always this idea running through a lot of these, you know, the Four Feathers-esque kind of, you know, cracking British adventure stories and British colonial stories of not just, well, we're going to go to these men and they're savages, but like, yes, cannibalism's a factor, but there's also the idea of the threat of, you know, you as a white british man being subjugated by one of these brutal animals you know mm. these these men that are so ungodly that they would take other men in that fashion and all of that like that is that is a thing that is definitely present in a lot of those british adventure stories and i i say that because one of the fascinating things that lean does with lawrence of arabia remember seven pillars of wisdom was a huge hit it was a popular book because it was, you know, in a way, Lawrence T. Lawrence himself is a good writer. He's a yeah. very good writer. The adventure stories sound adventurous. But, you know, what Lean is doing with Lawrence Barabia isn't just reconciling the war. He's also making a movie that is a refutation of all of the British adventure novels. This is a refutation of Rudyard Kipling, right? This yeah. is a refutation of, this movie comes along later, but like the Michael Caine Zulu movie. Like, this is a refutation of, British colonialism and in that same way like kind of examining that concept of this thing that is kind of omnipresent in these you know this in these British adventure stories of like well what would these savages do you know what would these especially because you know in comparison you know Lawrence is in the desert with the Arabs the greedy barbarous cruel people and then he's in the Turkish civilization, and that's when this happens, yeah, you yeah. know, which I think is, it's just a really compelling way to, to address well, that, that subject. And speaking of taboos for the time, movies very homoerotic. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Very taboo at the time. And this was, again, in my brief research, you know, I didn't read a fucking book like fucking, <laughs> like big money pants Mike over there. Um, money pants Mike? I Do you know think I might I'm sorry, you're you're saying I'm rich because I bought a book? You, yeah. No, no, you're rich because you live in your own fucking duplex, you bitch. Yeah. Wasting money on books. What kind of bullshit is that? Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> Come on. Alright, but Alright, so I found that in an interview with the Washington Post in nineteen eighty nine, Lean said that Lawrence and Ali were written as being in a gay relationship. Mm-hmm. And then when asked about whether the film was, quote-unquote, pervasively homoerotic, Lean responded, and this is a quote from Lean, yes, of course it is, throughout. I'll never forget standing there in the desert once with some of these tough Arab buggers, some of the toughest we had, and I suddenly thought, he's making eyes at me. And he was. (laughs) So it does pervade it, the whole story. And certainly Lawrence was very, if not entirely, homosexual. We thought we were being very daring at the time. Lawrence and Omar... Lawrence and the Arab boys. He also compares Ali and Lawrence's romance in the film. 
to the relationship in Brief Encounter. Mm-hmm. So he was very much kind of kind of poking the bear with his yeah. $150 million uh, war epic, <laughs> the uh, 1962 version of Oppenheimer. <laughs> well, and, and Lawrence, Lawrence uh, notably, I'm going to forget the gentleman's name, or the young boy's name, but, but Lawrence fell in love with a young man when he was in the desert. Now, there's no evidence that they had a sexual relationship, and the actual... Uh, you know, Lawrence was interviewed and pressed many times on whether or not he was a homosexual. And by all accounts, it seems like he was one of these guys who had, you know, he could romantically fall in love with other men, but he just was repulsed by sex in general. Uh, it has some things to do with his mother and abuse as a child. I, I'm not going to get doesn't it, matter but... what your sex is, as long as your hands can hold a fucking switch. <laughs> but yeah, but but, you know, the, the tragedy of it in a way was some people like to romanticize the story. And Lawrence has himself rom- had romanticized the story of he fell in love with this young man because he was one of the only boys that he met in the desert who could actually write in Arabic. Hmm. And he talked about like one of the things he loved about this boy was he felt like, I don't want to. They're sending me out here. This is before he was part of the Arab Bureau, right? This was during his journey as a younger man. They're sending me out here to try and anglicize these arabs i don't want to anglicize this boy i want to help him become the best arab he can be Hmm. um and it seemed like this young man was a guiding force for lawrence that he had this idea of like well once i unite the arabs as their own nation this will be a perfect place for him uh tragically that that uh young man died in 1916 lawrence didn't find out until well into the war but you know tom you're talking about the relationship with ali ali is absolutely at least partly modeled after that. And one of the things I think is interesting, you know, uh, my partner and I watched it, she was seeing it for the first time, and that was, she clicked into that right away, that there was this tension between them. But even she said, like, it doesn't seem like a sexual thing so much as it genuinely is like a, there is a romance between them. There is a love there, you know? It's not just an attraction, right? It's not just a physical thing. It's like, you genuinely see that Ali comes to love Lawrence. And so when the, you know, no prisoners massacre happens, like it breaks his heart. You yeah. know, there's a genuine love there. So and they kind of yeah. emphasize, they emphasize that one more time at the very end where Ali's last scene where he's, uh, yeah. are you with the other, like, uh, why do you weep? Like he's, you know, mm-hmm. Lawrence is stuck in the quagmire of politics, you know, trying to, now that they're in Damascus, trying to, you know, figure out, run, have, run the city. And I just, he's kind of like, he's lost him. He's lost him to, to, the, to this world and he, he won't get him back again. And you see him crying about that. Like, yeah, like he, he loved the man he loved, the brother, the brother in arms and the man he loved is not, he's gone now. And it's just, yeah, it really is a tender moment. Like, it's just a, yeah, but it's, it's a tender, but like you see, he's like, he does, he's crying, but like he pulls the dagger out. It's like, I'm still, <laughs> like, it's that, it's that, 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 uh, I don't know, that red, it's a very distinct kind of red blooded, um, that, uh, Arabic machismo, I guess it is, you know, like, yeah, like, how you, like, I, and I, like, oh, I was, so, like, it was such a weird thing, um, in Afghanistan and Iraq, I would see that, like, the, uh, the ANSS and the Afghanistan National Guard, the Iraqi soldiers, they would often, if, if they're, like, bros, they'll, um, hold hands and, like, hold pinkies and stuff, like, and we had to, like, we had to get this explained to us as dumb Americans that, like, it's not, like, all overly homosexual or gay. But like it could be, but like, but they wouldn't hold it. It wasn't that concept wasn't the same to them. It's like, like it again. It sounds hypocritical or even confusing to us that homosexuality is not being gay. Like it just this is yeah. This is how men interact when look when they're friends or lover or in love. 
And that's just what it is. And that came from, you know, from centuries of their having to like trust each other to survive in in the harshest environments with the closest bonds. That's just just what it is. You know, and and even now to to a lot of, in all warriors, cultures, throughout history, the bond between comrades in, in war becomes that strong, sometimes stronger than intimate relationships with men and women or, or support partners. That's just how it is. So yeah, it's definitely part of, you see that here in the movie. And then it, they, they, don't, they, they, don't, they, don't need, they don't need to question it. They, they, don't, they don't need to like um, put a question on it. It's just that you just see them on the that uh, as weird as Lawrence is, they, he's, they, people love him all the same. And unfortunately, and as it shows, he can't love him back, which is kind of one of the tragedies well, of it all. Well, shit. I mean, to to kind of put an even finer point on the fact that they were kind of a couple and and all that, the the very last thing uh, Ali says to uh, Lawrence is, you know, blah blah blah. I'm gonna go off to this place. I forget what city he says. I'm gonna go here and and I'm gonna become a politician. <laughs> Just like, yeah, I'm gonna become a piece of shit like you because none of this mattered it's just like that's the kind of thing like you would say to someone as you're breaking up oh yeah like (laughs) instead of saying like oh i'm gonna go fuck everybody at a club tonight it's like no i'm gonna go to another city and i'm gonna become a piece of shit politician because of what you did to me you fucking asshole speaking of speaking of politicians i want to talk a bit more about prince faisal because of course the one of the better scenes in the film one of my favorite things of him is the return of prince faisal because we see him at the beginning and he is such a, you know, he plays it, when we, when we see him in the film, he's mostly interacting with Lawrence, right? And being like, ah, yes, young man, you're, you're, you can lead us to Damascus, you can lead us to Aqaba, you're so wise, you're so great. And if you watch those early scenes, you might just read it as like, ah, Faisal thinks he's found a kindred spirit. Later, the photographer comes along and... He's like, oh, you want someone for your American war propaganda? Lawrence is your man. So, okay, maybe there's admiration. Last time we see Faisal, he's sitting at the table, divvying up the nations. Mm-hmm. And he has that line, I think we'll all be glad to be done with Mr. Lawrence. And it's like you realize in that moment, like Lawrence was as much a useful tool for Faisal as he was for the Brits. Now, I want to also note, because I think this is a fascinating bit of historical context here, what goes on with Faisal's bloodline. By the time the movie comes out, remember this movie's coming out in 62. In 1958, Faisal's grandson is killed during the 1958 Iraqi military coup. So by the time this movie's coming out, the descendants of Faisal and his hard-won, you know, land taken away in a military coup. But before you ask, no, not that one. (laughs) Because this is the pre- the 68 coup in, uh, that's 58, 10 years later in 1968, the leaders from that coup would then be ousted by, everybody say it together, Saddam Hussein. <laughs> Listen, we love, we love a sequel. We love a sequel. <laughs> honestly, by, by, by honestly, acclaimed novelist Saddam Hussein. The 58 revolution and all that, and Faisal's grandson being killed in that? A hundred percent part of like going through Lean's mind making this movie, which again gives you that hindsight ending that we have in 1962 of just like this was kind of an inflection point, Mm -hmm. and uh, we fucked up. Yeah, we fucked it up, and Uh, and that but that everybody fucked it up because you have those moments. Every every, everybody fucked everything up. The Arab Council is saying there's a fire. Well, let that part of the city just burn. We don't give a shit. 
And then you cut back to the British going, so if we let that burn, they'll probably give this place up, right? Like every <laughs> single person is just like, I don't know, let it burn down and maybe we'll get something good out of it. Yeah, I like that. The pretty much like the, the kind of the ultimate realization, the realization of who he is. Like uh, he's, he's in some cases shooter. Yeah, he's a shooter, smarter politician than all the squabbling rich we see, all those supposedly uh, civilized people. He's playing that long, he's playing 40 chess, you know? He's like, he's, <laughs> he, he, mentions, he mentions to the, you know, well, well, you're just you're you're just a general. I'm a king. Like like wow. Like this guy really like again that kind of reinforces that um the otherness of the Arabic people of just savages. Normally, like they're they they they're royalty. They they've yeah. maintained their empires for centuries. And of course now even even as it's giving, even as it's being fucked up, there's still somebody there who like has a mind and right and on the mind and the prize. Even after, even after all this shit, you know. But of course, as we've seen in history, uh, you know, it'll be all for naught. Um, actually, you know what? It's actually a good point. I, I want to run a long time, but I wanted to bring this up because um, you mentioning like the the current state of Iraq is kind of reflected from this inflection point. Um, so before this is not about the movie itself specifically, but um, just um, we got you know you asked me earlier about the my context with the history and so forth, and one of the things that I reading read about recently and and studied it uh is uh what they called them, Lawrence of Afghanistan. It's a very famous story from a few years ago about a real-life uh, U.S. Green Beret Special Forces person, um, Major Jim Gant. And essentially, uh, he was a special operator in Afghanistan, and his whole thing was the, the, the tribal stability operations, where instead of like uh, the how the global war on terror, you know, post-9-11 was uh, throwing a huge money resources at these countries, he he and a small group of people went to these isolated tribal areas in Afghanistan, um, established heart, real connections with the tribal leaders, and eventually started getting victories against the Taliban and against and against all the uh, 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 Taliban-related um, affiliates. Actual like there was like coming kind of the famously real progress, um, or the first real tangible progress in that in OEF as it was called during freedom. Um, so much that you even got press like uh, uh, General Petraeus and other other higher ranking officials lauding Major Gant, but then, then part then the the the, the next part of the story is uh, his eventual ousting and um, his downfall, um, because he himself was a you know Iraqi veteran of multiple Iraqi tours um, before his move to Afghanistan, and uh, you know and many many combat situations, uh, many injuries. So terrible PTSD, terrible uh, chronic pain. So he ended up being kind of addicted to painkillers and alcohol and stuff. So that kind of that began to cloud his judgment, or as it's as been reported in his in his process. But also, and this is there's a book about this a, a kind of part part uh, biography, part um, news reporting, where uh, there's a news reporter, uh, Ann Tyson, who was there embedded with the soldiers, ended up having having an affair. And so she essentially became his um, wife. The, the the actual tribe school, when they would come to his force, they would say, "Oh, it's Jim's wife." It was, and he basically, um, you know, in the movie, like you see, Lawrence is uh, he's distinct with his white gown, his white Arabic sheriff gowns, uh, and Jim Gant kind of did the same thing. He had the costume, full robe, the full mustache, the full hat, and everything. He was embedded as as much as anybody ever could, it, you know. And in, in, in this in this book, you read that he. Uh, his, the tribal leaders considered them like brothers, an actual like blood brother. 
that's how strong they got. But again, like, uh, he basically just, like, the way all this kind of story goes, he just got in too deep, you know, like, his, his own psychosis, his own, because he also, along with, along with his, the, the, the tribal mentality, he also had a very, like, strong, like, a uh, Spartan warrior bullshit going on, too, in his mind, which, you know, is kind of part of, course, for Forces guys, you know, <laughs> but, like, they, they're, they kind of inherently, well, no, I shouldn't say it like that. It's very easy to lose your head in that world. Uh, or you know, to go to go over the deep end. It's, it's, it's they're always on the edge. That's literally. So it, it, it's, it's well, he's just another victim of that, and he just kind of went into his own mind. He, there's even the part excerpt in the book where um he actually has a shuro with a Taliban Taliban leader, and the Taliban leader is, is impressed with Jim's prowess, and the he asks him, "You should come fight with us, the Taliban." And according to Jim, he says. Uh, he laughs and stops for a minute, and he says, "Do not ask me again, or I'll kill you." Because in his mind, he's like, "Maybe I could do it. Maybe I could join the Taliban. Maybe I could be a force for tribal good." Like that's that's how far he, that's how deep he was in. But you know, like and again, like that's in that culture, in that in that tribal warrior mindset, that that makes perfect sense. I can defeat my enemy by by ruling them, but no, you're still U.S. You are still U.S. conscripted soldier. <laughs> that's treason, you know. Like, so, <laughs> so again, like, yeah, I, I want I, that story really got to me. Um, when I heard about it a few years ago, especially like when I was in being in Afghanistan and Iraq, and um, in the, in the other part of the, the downfall, like you know, the kind of the general betrays this, this owned him and all, all those politicians and uh, high ranking generals like kind of disowned him. Um, but it was like he was, even though he had so much progress, um actual effective war fighting abilities so yeah I, I always think about that maybe that's maybe my, my strongest link to this film because again i see that the actual historical context it's it's depicting even with all of its myth making directly influences our real world history to this fucking day and what i see and, and people like lawrence who was look these interesting unusual unique people they're still caught in the same fucking cycle, the same trap of having to having to be make themselves myths and icons, having to buy their own bullshit to to be effective. Because uh, and and it's just so again, it's sad. Like they, in the end of the film, Lawrence is chewed up and spit out. He's done. He's he's a shell of himself, and he's like, uh, you know, the last scene. Like, oh, it's time. His driver. It's time to go home. He's like, what? Like he can't even concept, process the concept of home anymore. Because everything he had was in the desert, and now he's lost it. And what else is there in his life? And he's... to uh, almost kind of end it, end this discussion, I guess, before the actual end. But like to end it at the beginning of the movie. Yeah. The kind of a way a lot of you know you hear a lot of stories about soldiers that come home with PTSD or whatever. And as someone with PTSD, I kind of understand this living idea, this idea too. He's back home, and how does he die? Driving like. And like an asshole on his motorcycle, like looking for that rush, yeah. Because he thinks he he's not he can't die. He still believes his own myth from the fucking desert. He's looking for that rush, and what happens? Mm-hmm. Goes off the road and he fucking dies. Mm-hmm. And you know what? You're just a human being. Yeah. What I love about that framing is when you watch the movie at the beginning. I mean, obviously, first we just get an overhead shot of him with jaunty Maurice Jarre music. We didn't even talk about the Maurice Jarre score, which I love. It's one of my favorite movie scores. But that jaunty music as he's fixing his motorcycle with the credits, 
where you're like, I feel like I could be watching The Sound of Music right now. Like yeah. It's very cheery. Um, but when you watch the movie the first time at the beginning and he's riding the motorcycle, you know, Tom, like you say, like he thinks he can't die, right? And that's one way of reading Lawrence. What I love is that by the end, when the last thing we see is Lawrence, you know, essentially like lost in the car at home, sir, and he watches the motorcycle pass by and kick the dust back, it raises the question every other time you watch it that we'll never know. It raises the question, was he riding the bike that recklessly because he thinks he can't die, or was he riding the bike that recklessly because he hopes he can? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that ending really recontextualizes yeah. it where there is that point, because yeah, exactly. he does die so young, and there is that, that wonder of like, well, would Lawrence have been happier if he had died in battle? Like, would he have felt more valid? Yeah. Um, so there's, there's that element. I, again, obviously, there's a lot of meat left on the bone. We could talk about this movie um, into Ace. infinity. We could talk about it longer than the movie itself. I mean, you, you acknowledged up top by the match cut, like one of the most famous shots in film history, and there's so much to talk about yeah. this movie. We, we barely even touched on that. And the editing, the incredible editing, and the incredible cinematography. But I just want to kind of, before we wrap up talking the Oscars, Vice, did you have any kind of last licks you wanted to talk about with anything about this film? Oh, no, just like I said, like, you know, like I'm, that story I mentioned with, you know, from, from T. Lawrence to Jim Gant to and all the people in between. Once, once again, the, the, the power this movie has radiates not just with cinematic language, and like it, this is a very much a war film, and set this stuff is still so relevant today. People be getting lost to the system, and some of these unique, these some of these brilliant, brilliant the way brilliance and 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 brilliance and majesty is wasted in these in this these grabs of power, as opposed to like you know the, instead of building society up, which is using it for power plays. So yeah, all all of that, all the stuff that's in this movie even though it's of its time, it's still very much so important now. Again, not just for cinematics uh, reasons, but just as a story about us. You know, yeah, fantastic film. So, without further ado, now we get to play the game. It's actually been nearly two hours since I read the registry <laughs> statement, so we'll see what's retained. Hour and um, a half, excuse me. We Tom, got deep in before true. we got that's to the true. statement. That's fair. Um, Tom, how do you think Lawrence of Arabia fared at the Academy Awards that year? Well, I think it got seven wins. <laughs> okay, so tell me, interesting call. Tell me, so what do you think it got? You, you, what, what did it get nominations for? What did it win? I want to, I want to know. This is how we. Uh, it won picture, director, uh, score, cinematography, um. Screenplay, uh, production design. I don't know. I know Peter O'Toole was nominated. He lost to Gregory Peck for uh, Kill a Mockingbird. Um, remember when they made a sequel to that book where Atticus Finch was racist? Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. I'll skip that one. <laughs> yeah. That's truly one of the most like weirdest moments of pop culture where it's just like, hey, we made a sequel to Kill a Mockingbird. I mean, okay. Atticus is racist now. <laughs> Well, because like, you remember, you remember the whole thing was it was like the, they were like, oh, there's actually a sequel to To Kill a Mockingbird. Oh my god, wow! Then they went, well, it's actually based on an earlier draft to Kill a Mockingbird. Okay, <laughs> and it was like she didn't want it released, so why is it released? She changed her mind now. Okay, <laughs> she also might have dementia. 
Do you think that's why she changed her mind? <laughs> Who can say? Do you think? Um, so, well, Tom, kind of yes. You're partly right. I mean, obviously, uh, it does win Best Picture. The other nominees that year, I think, are fascinating because it does kind of point to what a year this was. The other nominees were The Longest Day, the film about the uh, invasion of Normandy, which has every actor you've ever heard of in it and has all of the characters speaking their actual languages, which is very cool to watch. So the French characters are speaking French, the German characters speak German, etc. So that's very interesting. Another war movie contrast that. The Music Man, uh, the big musical, uh, Mutiny on the Bounty, but not the good one, the one where Brando's doing the weird accent. <laughs> and of course, To Kill a Mockingbird. Of those, The Music Man and To Kill a Mockingbird also in the registry. It was also nominated for Best Director, which it won. Nominated for Best Actor for Peter O'Toole, losing to Gregory Peck in To Kill a Mockingbird. Nominated for Best Supporting Actor for Omar Sharif. Yeah, wow. Uh, lost to Ed Begley for Sweet Bird of Youth. Uh, it was nominated for Best Adapted Screenplay, because it's adapted from Seven Pillars of Wisdom, and loses to To Kill a Mockingbird. Uh, it was nominated for Best Original Score, which it won. Best Sound, which it won. Best Art Direction, Color, because remember, they split, in these years, they would split the categories color and black and white. So this is how Lawrence of Arabia gets some wins over Mockingbird, too. So Art Direction, Color, it wins. Cinematography, Color, it wins. And Best Film Editing, it wins. So interestingly, while we can now watch it, especially compared to, like, uh, no disrespect to Ed Begley, <laughs> he's fine in Sweet Bird of Youth. That should be Sharif's Oscar. But it is this thing where you have to consider, like, O'Toole and Sharif were not household names at that point at all. They were new guys on the block. So you get this sense that they were like, well, we got to give it to Gregory Peck. He's Gregory Peck, not this young upstart. And Omar Sharif, too, like, not this young upstart. Um, this but young nevertheless. Brown fella. Yeah. Uh, well, Omar Sharif also gets his, uh, you know, his, his consolation prize, you know, Dr. Shivago. Well, Dr. Shivago and Funny Girl. Hmm. That's the even wilder one. Like, Consider the fact, I was talking about this with my partner, because I was like, Omar Sharif, right, was so, was so hot, and I just mean like physically, just so attractive, so undeniable, that even 60s Hollywood was like, we're racist, we're real racist, even we can't avoid making him Barbara Streisand's love interest <laughs> in one of our biggest movies. Just the, I mean, that's how big it was. Um, all that being said, that was Lawrence Arabia. Vice, thank you so much for joining us for this episode and thank you so much for being as i said our our uh unofficial war correspondent here on you're missing out for a third year in a row um yeah i gotta think I'm, you guys like always uh, you forced me to um fill in my cinematic gaps you know these are i mean it's so stupid to say uh we gotta make you watch some of the greatest films of all time but you know i guess that's part of the fun of the podcast itself is like you know going through the registry like you know like and kind of realizing these aren't just there for posterity's sake. These are fucking phenomenal pieces of art. And so, yeah, it's just, it's just so, but it's, well, I guess it's fun that I have some of my good friends that I haven't seen in a while, you know, help me, you know, get me, get me doing this stuff. It's, it's a really great experience for me, honestly. Uh, Vice, yeah. that's true. Vice, that's true in most cases, but I, I, you've got the video here. You can see all three of our faces right now, because I do have to tell you, next season, there's potentially three different war movies on the table. I just want oh, you to know. Oh boy! So you get the call that two of them are are World War One movies. Okay. Paths of Glory. And there's also the silent film, The Big Parade. Depending on how broad you want to get with war, next season there's also a movie set during the Civil War. 
and after the Civil War. <laughs> I just want you to know in case you want to be here for two hours of me and Tom going <sighs> no, no, two, two hours of Mike doing that and me saying something that makes him go, Tom, stop! <laughs> But but uh, anyway, so just know next season, many different ways to go with how we define a war film. Uh, and we we hope you'll come back for whichever of those. Or... <laughs> I got a fucking choice. You know what I'm coming for. But the, the, the birth edition death of this podcast is going to be. <laughs> it's, it is. Can I tell you? Can I tell you? Anytime somebody has like talked to us again, who are you going to get for that? I, my answer has typically been, I know someone whose answer will either be, oh, hell yes, absolutely, or fuck you. No middle ground! <laughs> Wouldn't it be funny if he was like, no, I actually want to do What's Opera, Doc? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I was waging war on the, on the audience. Can I, can I tell you? Can I tell you, Tom? I think if you know if, if that's the episode we end up doing, Vice will be talking about Breath of a Nation, while you and I will keep trying to shift the conversation to what's up, Radak, or anything else. Because <laughs> I just going so uh, those guys in those hoods, and you and I going, Bugs Bunny's fun, huh? He wears <laughs> nah, a little Vi- helmet. Me and, me and Vice are gonna be like a fucking a tennis match that never ends. Just, oh. just it'll back be, and forth. it'll be that just it'll be that ri- it'll be that Richard Pryor Chevy Chase sketch from SNL back in the day. <laughs> word associations it'll be the you know the fear um but vice thank you so much for joining us uh before you go um please throw out any plugs for social media or your very good very popular podcast or anything else you want to plug i don't know popular we're all right right, though no um so thank you guys for having me and uh if you're not familiar with my writing my work already um my main thing i do currently um for the i guess long term to keel over is uh I am one of the co-hosts of the Action for Everyone podcast. Um, it's a for e podcast on the on the uh, on the podcast in the channels and such. So you know, me, me, my friend uh, Liam O'Donnell, the director of uh, Skyline, Beyond Skylines, and uh, in Skylines, you know, monster movies, and uh, and our friend uh, Mike Scott, the, the podcast master. We talk about the action movies uh, from the past, present, and the upcoming um, projects um, with a vast array of. Uh, Industry, industry personnel, um, film writers, and just cool people. And again, the point being, action for everyone. You know, um, people can say, you know, the, the, some people call them dad movies, quote unquote, or you know, or they might be conservative leaning, which is not a bad problem. But you know, people might think that way and avoid action movies. But no, like action is for everyone. There's all kinds of uh, elements of them that are for everyone to enjoy. That's what we're all about. Um, but yeah, so I'm on, yeah, a free podcast. Um. Yeah, and uh, otherwise, yeah, you can find me on on the social media accounts, on the Instagrams and the letterboxes. Uh, so I'll probably put my review of Lost for Reba finally here in letterbox. Uh, spoiler: five stars. Uh, <laughs> Instagram letterbox uh, at Vice Victus. and uh, and as I always say, I'm also I'm on these streets. You might see me at the Lincoln Center, uh, IMAX. You know, check me out there, or the or the IMAX in the Fresh, uh, Fresh Meadows in Queens. Probably too. Fake ass if you're if you're at a movie theater and you smell the wafting cement sensation of uh, cheeseburgers oh, yeah. in a pocket, you might, yeah, you, you you might be in the uh, a area of you're, a, you're a miss wild vice. By the power of vice, yes, I'm on these. A streets. wild vice has appeared. 
Vice, man, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for coming man, on every season. We, we look forward to having you on again next year. But everybody else, stick around. We'll be right back with our picks for the National Film Registry. The National Film Registry isn't some fixed object, frozen in time. It's always growing, adding new titles every year. These annual selections are made by the National Film Preservation Board, with members and representatives from organizations like the Academy, the DGA, and the AFI coming together to debate and decide. But they don't just pull titles out of thin air. They pull from the public, people like you and me, who can submit their nominations for the registry in the form on the Library of Congress's website. What we do, at the end of every episode, is have Mike and Tom pick films not yet in the registry that they feel should be, inspired by that day's topic. At the end of each season, those films will be formally submitted to the National Film Registry for consideration on behalf of your missing out. The only criteria? It must be an American film that's at least 10 years old. Here are today's picks. So I'm going to own this. I feel a little silly with this um, because there were a lot of sophisticated choices that I could make. I was between a number of things. I was desperately hoping that the movie The Message, the Anthony Quinn film, uh, was even an American co-production or anything, so I could have put that up. Uh, I was looking at other films like The the Lion in the Desert, the rare American-Libyan co-production. I was looking at things because I was thinking about it from an academic standpoint. Um, but if I'm being honest with myself, I, I, I had to get really personal on this one in terms of Lawrence of Arabia is, is a movie that means so much to me and, and is a, a romance of the desert in some ways and both myth-making and kind of deconstruction and ultimately a story about who is this, this man. And I fell in love with Lawrence of Arabia because it was kind of the next step up from a movie I fell in love with as a child, uh, which uh, you know, I'm sure is discussed, um, which, is, which is Disney's Aladdin. That was the movie that first kind of drew me to The Thousand and One Nights and drew me to all of this kind of the, the desert romance and all of that. And uh, as a uh, blonde-haired, blue-eyed little uh, white boy, uh, sophisticate, uh, you know, would-be sophisticate, being drawn to the desert in much the same way that the T. Lawrence was or the books. Um, but aside from just being connected to me personally there, I mean, there is no argument that Aladdin is a significant film. Um, that you have those incredible, uh, you know, Ashman Mankin songs. I think the other connective tissue there is the fact that there is something about Lawrence of Arabia when you see that performance uh, by Peter O'Toole at the center of it, and also, you know, Omar Sharif, but Peter O'Toole especially, it's a lightning bolt. You look at this and go, how did anyone do this? It's, it's, it's etched in lightning, uh, that performance. Even though it didn't win, you know, the Oscar or anything like that, it's just Ash and Lightning. And, and similarly, um, even if you stripped everything else away from Lawrence of Arabia, it would deserve to be in the registry for that Peter O'Toole performance. In the same way, if you strip everything else away from Aladdin, that Robin Williams performance is one of the greatest comedic performances in cinema and arguably the greatest voice acting performance of all time. So it's, it's a landmark film, part of that Disney renaissance, uh, one, of, one of the great films of that time, some incredible sequences in it, uh, some beautiful artwork. The animation on the genie is incredible. So it, there's just so much going for it. And I think that Aladdin uh, should, should join Little Mermaid and Beauty and the Beast in the National Film Registry to cover that whole like spread there as long as we just skip over the rescuers down under because I don't think that's getting in any time soon. I was just thinking about epics. And this is maybe the 
greatest epic of all time. Uh, the scale of it, you know, you wouldn't think a movie, about, a biopic about a guy, even during a war, would be this epic and have this sort of scale and this length. But then, like, all the extras and the battle scenes and all of that. Um, the historical aspect of it. Uh, so I was just thinking about epics. And uh, we kind of just don't even get them anymore. I mean, you know, we're in the summer of Oppenheimer and that in its way is an epic, but it's still like, it's a movie about guys in rooms talking. It's it's still, relatively speaking, a small scale movie. And I gotta say, I think the last one of these is one of the best, I gotta say. And it is my pick. It's one of my favorites from this director, who is very hit and miss with me. Uh despite people trying to reclaim him, uh, and despite his new movie coming out seemingly playing within a similar wheelhouse again, my pick is Kingdom of Heaven, Ridley Scott's uh, Crusades epic. Uh, the director's cut, not the theatrical cut. You gotta put the... It, it's a completely different experience. You understand why people fucking hated it when they saw the theatrical cut. You cut out what, like, what is it, like forty-five minutes an hour of the movie. You cut out, you cut out the whole, the, the whole heart of the thing. Um, it's a gorgeous movie. It's an epic movie. It the just what Ridley was able to get on screen was astounding. Um, you know, you're not, you're not gonna. There's not a performance in there that you could put up against. O'Toole or Sharif or even Quinn, you know, Ridley was never that is not that kind of guy. You know, you're really never gonna like look at him and say, Oh, he made he got this performance out of this actor, or like this actor is the best part of one of Ridley's movies. I don't care what the Gaga stands say about how she she was terrible in it. She was Russian. I don't get it. And she's an Italian from Brooklyn. I just don't understand that whole like just the fucking what did she get? A lesion in her brain making that movie? I don't know. But yeah, I think Kingdom of Heaven, and, and similar to what Lawrence of Arabia does, getting into the messy morality and the messy politics of that whole story and that whole era, that region of World War One, I, I think Kingdom of Heaven does a really great job of really, uh, I guess I guess you would say get to the truth of the Crusades, sort of. Not both sides it, but make it a complicated situation where you kind of just like, there's no winning in a situation like this where everybody who's going off to die is kind of just like, there's no, you know, there's no honor in this. Everybody's just going to die for kind of like World War One, just a complicated mess where nobody really knows what's happening. We're just fighting because they tell us there's honor in it. Um, so yeah, I think Kingdom of Heaven. Uh, deserves to be in the registry one because it's probably the last great epic of this kind we're ever gonna get. Two, I think it's Ridley's best movie. Like that's just me. I think it's Ridley's best movie. Yeah, and I think it's a perfect pairing with uh, Lawrence of Arabia in many ways. Uh, so yeah, Kingdom of Heaven, direct this cut, my pick. Let's all go to the lobby, lobby, lobby. Thank you again to Vice Victus for joining us. Next week, we're discussing a film shot in one of the earliest film studios in America. Returning guest Bella Zadenberg is back for the 1917 film, The Poor Little Rich Girl. Don't forget to follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you again next time.
here on You're Missing Out. They honor movies of historical, cultural, or aesthetic importance on the National Film Registry.